When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, characters, themes, theories, and more. Thank you so much for joining us today as we cover chapters 37 through 40 of Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros. But before we begin this deep dive, please listen closely to our content warning as always. Most importantly, we have spoilers for all of Iron Flame. We may be focusing on chapters 37 through 40 today, but we are bringing the whole book into the conversation. Everything from Iron Flame, Fourth Wing, and anything else that Rebecca Yaros has said, it's all on the table. So if you don't know why Felix is about to steal all of our hearts, and explode our minds, please go finish the book. We will be here when you're done. Next up, this podcast is Rated R. We of Fantasy Fangirls are adults who say adult things with adult words about an adult book. We're about to analyze a blowjob scene in detail. So this episode is absolutely rated R. If you are a parent or a family member of ours, please, for the love of God, go listen to any other episode. Your ears will thank you later. But if you're not a family member or a parent of ours, then just be mindful of little listening ears and get ready for a ride. Wink. Really? Any other episode, Nicole? Because there's nothing else in any other episode? (laughs) No, we're innocent little doves in every other episode. (laughs) You all know the drill. You know how we work here. Something a little extra special today is you probably actually noticed when you opened up this episode. Surprise! We have a new logo! When we started Fantasy Fangirls back in September, we had... No idea whatsoever what this would grow to be. And as we've grown this into something that is extremely beyond our wildest dreams, we wanted to revamp this logo to uniquely represent our brand and where Fantasy Fangirls is going. And as exciting as it is to introduce our new amazing logo, I will admit, Nicole, that it's a little bittersweet to say goodbye to the OG branding that truly carried us to the point where we're at today. Who knew something I made in Canva in five minutes (laughs) would mean so freaking much to me me, I swear to God. And with this in mind, however, we are going to retire all of the original branded merch in our shop on January 19th. So if you've been itching to rep the OG logo to show, hey, you've been part of Fantasy Fangirl since its early days, please head to the link in our show notes or YouTube caption. Or if you're like, you know what, out with the old, in with the new, I'm ready to rep this new logo. We have so much new branded merch from stickers, sweatshirts, t-shirts, mugs, everything. It is all in our shop. Last thing, as always, before we jump into our Iron Flame episode seven. If you love Fantasy Fangirls and you want to support us in 
and making this dream our livelihood. If you want more content, more community connection, discounts on merch, A, like that new merch we have, early access to episodes, and more, please check out our Patreon. We have two membership tiers, Cadets and Dragon Riders. And like I just mentioned, if you want some OG merch, if you want the new logo merch, you can get it through Patreon for 20% off. Love a deal. To join our Patreon, the link is in the show notes or YouTube captions. And really and truly, thank you so much for helping us bring these episodes to you. And now, Lexi, it is time to see our beautiful Darna again. Yay! About fucking time! <laughs> Let's begin this episode deep dive with Battle Breathe, a.k.a. Nicole's summary of what happens as we kick it off with part two, chapters 37 through 40 of Iron Flame. Part two, chapter 37. Violet is trapped in another dream where she faces off with the sage. And just as he's about to take a dagger to her, she wakes up in Zayden's very large, very comfortable bed. And next to her is a half-naked sleeping shadow daddy feeling frisky and like desperately wanting to feel alive. She kisses Zayden awake and then really makes him feel awake. And bang, bang, bangity bang. I said bang, bang, bangity bang. No better way to start part two. (laughs) Heading to the assembly chamber, Zayden and Violet pass the hundreds of cadets they brought with them and wonder what the hell did they just do? And it seems like they're not the only ones thinking this. They walk into an absolutely irate assembly meeting. These people are pissed at what Violet has done, but Zayden steps in with a not my girl and reminds the assembly that he alone bears the responsibility for Violet. He pulls down his shirt, exposing miles of rock hard body. Wait, that was earlier in this chapter. He exposes a silver scar right above his heart. Satan finally talks some sense into these people, mostly. You have knowledge, fucking teach them. And just as they're starting to gather a bit of a plan, a shimmering bond opens up within Violet again. And Darna is finally awake. Chapter 38. In the dragon's hangout spot in the Valley of Erasia, Violet meets up with Taryn, Segal, and Indarna. And our girl is hungry. After flaring her wing in an attempt to flight, but stumbling forward instead, almost taking Violet out, and Darna and Segal walk off to enjoy a herd of sheep. Tough time to be a sheep in Eurasia. Violet and Taryn have a super private conversation where Taryn tells Violet that one of Andarna's wings has not properly formed, and because of that, she will never bear a rider. Mini montage! With this deeply distressing information regarding Andarna, Violet dives into translating Warwick's journal, and of course, back into classes, Eurasia style, and our crew is adjusting to this new life, like in Battle Brief. Still taught by Devera, but now also Brennan, aka Lieutenant Colonel Acerai. And man, oh man, is this a different Battle Brief. They tell the actual truth. Go figure. They say that the Paromish town of Anka has been taken by dark wielders, but also the dark wielders are just chilling in Zolia, almost like using it as a base. Hmm, we will be talking about that later. We also learn that Griffin Flyers attacked Samara looking for weaponry. Violet, frustrated with the repercussions of her actions with taking half of the Bezgaeth recruits, woof, is determined to figure out how to get to Corden and get this damn luminary. But shit, a riot approaches and Tyne leads the pack. Shortest revolution in history. Violet bursts out into the courtyard and puts herself between Mira and Ryerson House. And Taryn takes it to another level, grabbing Tyne's throat and for fuck's sake, almost killing him. Turns out Mira comes in peace though. Lilith came to Samara and told them all the truth about the Wyvern and the Dark Wielders and gave them the opportunity to choose their own adventure. Mira chose the revolution. Mira's gaze then shifts to her uh, you should be dead, brother. He is ecstatic. They run towards each other, finally reunited, and Mira punches him 
in the face. Chapter 39. All three soaring gills are reunited and Brennan definitely has a broken nose. Sounds like siblings. Mira is rightfully pissed at Brennan and makes it known with numerous twist the knife comebacks to her bigger bro. And Violet, trying to help her brother and de-escalate the situation, is ignored by these three older siblings. Shouts to you, my younger sibs. Zayden walks in and Violet quite literally climbs this man like a tree. And Brennan is like, clutch my pearls in front of my eyes. But Violet drops the knowledge bomb on the situation. I know how to raise the wards. Later, the Assembly, Bodhi, and Violet are all walking towards the wardstone in Erasia. And the Assembly are being little bitches about it. Violet literally thinks that she can save them all and they're all like you're wasting my afternoon ma'am. All they need to do is take the six most powerful riders in Arisha and bleed on the wardstone. That's it. They open up their palms and begin to bleed on the wardstone and boy oh boy do I hope they have their tetanus shots. But nothing happens. Dun dun dun. The assembly is like I told you she's wasting our time. Way to rub it in y'all. Zayden is an encouraging boyfriend about it all though. He'll try again as he wraps both of their hands. But Felix, noticing her powers start to rise, is actually helpful. We'll start our lessons tomorrow. However, Violet, she needs to do more. So she goes to her sister and requests her help. Chapter 40, it's signet training time. My fucking favorite. I'm so excited to talk Me about too. this. Violet and Felix stand on top of a mountain and Felix is ready to see what this lightning wielder, the most powerful rider in her generation can do. And Violet wields two strikes almost back to back and looks at Felix and is like, did you see that? But Felix is wildly unimpressed. He goes on to tell her that thanks to Carr, she never mastered the basics of her pure power signet. Oh, and she can also wield lightning from her own two hands. He gives her a small orb with alloy for her to begin practicing siphoning her power through, so to speak. Felix might be an ass, but boy, oh boy, he is one helpful ass. Thank you for entering our story, my guy. Later, Mira, Violet, and Brennan are heading to their dragons for a sneaky mission. They are going behind Zayden's back and flying to Viscount Takaris's house. Fucking favorite stretch in the book. As they land in this beautiful city, they notice that it definitely appears that they were expected here. Huh, weird. They are required to share one truth with the line of Griffinfly one of whom has the Griffin Flyer equivalent of the Truth Sayer Signet. Turns out they have really powerful mind powers. This might be important for later. Violet admits to the Truth Spotter that she is here to wield for Takaris, Brennan is here to make a deal for the Luminary, and Mira is here to gut people like fishies if they hurt Violet. Turns out that Mira's approach earns her some respect from those Griffin Flyers. But just as the guards part the way to make it into the palace, a rider in all black steps out like he is ready to commit some shadow daddy murder. You're not where I left you, violence. Dun, dun, dun! Woo! As always, thank you so much for that battle brief there, Nicole. Now it is time for us to don our signets, tap into our powers just like Violet does in the stretch of chapters, and start with our key insights, theories, foreshadowing, and all the rest of that good stuff. We open on yet another Venom dream. And this is the opening to part two. So this is like neon sign. Pay attention to this, y'all. Now in episode four, I did a mega deep dive on who could the sage possibly be, highly emphasized the connections to Zayden. And while I'm still leaning no on the Zayden front, I did come across yet another parallel. And yep, it is about <laughs> italics. I'm fucking on it with it. Violet is in her head and she's thinking, I'm trapped in this fucking nightmare again, but at least I made it farther across the sunburn field this time. Note, she is thinking this in her head with no italics. And she has also said nothing out loud to the Venom thus far. But he responds to her with, of course, 
again. Remember, she said, I'm trapped in this fucking nightmare again. He responds out loud with, of course, again. Right before he says this, he says, you will never be free of me. I will hunt you down to the ends of the continent and beyond. Sounds quite a lot like there's nowhere in existence you could go where I couldn't find you violence. Remember, that was in chapter 36. Now, this could be someone else related to Zayden. This could be another mind signet. Now, I've also speculated that the Venon have some kind of special power, special relationship with mind signets. So I think that this is definitely more leaning towards that than leaning towards Zayden. I think we're maybe supposed to think it's Zayden, possibly, or at least speculate it. So I'm leaning more towards the Venon have some kind of special mind signet abilities. And that might be why they're also hunting Zayden as well. And maybe possibly Violet, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, I also think that, of course, he's able to hear her inside her brain because it's already inside of her brain. This is like an inception effect because he already can go into her mind in the dreams. And we're going to get to that about how they can communicate here in just a moment. Then, of course, within the dream, he can also read her mind because he is reading her mind as the dream it overall. I'm sorry, I'm talking about Inception sort of things. It's going to be a little bit confusing no matter what. So that was my interpretation. But of course, I love that call out there. And I do think that there is something to this mind signet concept. Who knows? Maybe Colonel Atos also has a mind signet. And that is what kicked off his whole buddy buddy there with the Venon. I have no idea. But just throwing that out there. Oh, I like where your mind is going on that front. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't think about it in the way of the dream. That almost feels like too easy to me. You know what I mean? But also, it is a dream like that is how dreams work I don't know we'll see but I do like the idea about Venon having some kind of special mind signets and that's why they're hunting specifically Zayden because he has a mind signet and most possibly Violet because maybe she has a mind signet as well we'll get to that later I want to dive into something else here regarding the dreams we could talk about these dreams all day long but I'm going to pull out a few more key insights here especially that have been very popular on the internet so there's been a lot of speculation among readers that Violet is actually seeing Zayden's nightmares and therefore it's a hint to her second signet I'm going to explain how these actually are very much Violet's nightmares because I think that there is a very important distinction number one Violet sees the same sage in all of her nightmares and he wears maroon robes. We get confirmation that this is the same sage that was at Resin. I checked and yes, Resin sage and her dream sage are wearing those purple floor length robes. So yes, this is indeed the same sage. I'm just going to say purple and maroon. They're going to be considered the same color here. However, later in chapter 52's dream, Violet does note that his robes are purple today, which leads me to think maybe they're not actually always purple, even though all of the dream descriptions that we get, they are purple there. So just a little thing to note there. But the venom we face in Zayden's POV chapter 66, which I don't think is so much of a nightmare as a memory, has blue robes. And there is some kind of language there that this has been a reoccurring nightmare as well. And now it's almost like happening in real life here. We learn that this venom who has been visiting Zayden's dreams and who he faces off at the very end in person, he is actually a general. So it has been this general primarily in Zayden's nightmares with his blue robes. So two different dark wielders are infiltrating Zayden and Violet's dreams to communicate with each of them. One has blue robes and is a general, so that makes sense that he's going after Zayden, who's the one who they all really, really want. And then the sage with maroon slash purple robes is one in Violet's dreams. Maybe it's more of like taunting for the benefit of the general there. Kind of like that lower level's going after, yes, the powerful one, but then the general is going after the 
most powerful one who they really want. Can we bring it back to Varish in the interrogation chamber? Violet was the tool. Zayden was the prize. What exactly. is this the same thinking? Because they're all venom. <laughs> what if this is all the same? Exactly. So this brings me to my second point here about why I really do believe that these are Violet's nightmares is that Violet refers to Taryn and Andarna in the first dream sequence we got several chapters back. And if she's referring to Taryn and Andarna, I just, I don't feel like it would be her tapping into Zayden's dreams because she is very much locked in her nightmare as herself because she is concerned about her dragons. And the final point here is that we know that the Venon really do want Violet in addition to Zayden. Every Venon she encounters tells her this. From the dark wielder she fights in Resin to the captured Venon she set up against in Corden, who we will cover in our next episode, to the one she faces off with at the Battle of Beskyeth, and then of course Jack fucking Barlow. So even though we know that they ultimately want Zayden most of all, we do know that they really do want Violet. So of course they would also be going into her nightmares and I'll say sharing this information with her. So that's why I believe it's not Zayden's dreams that she's seeing. It is her own dreams and Zayden is having his own nightmares as well. Let's talk about how in the world does Venon work with all this communication? Because I'm assuming that these dream sequences are indeed how the Venon communicate from a far distance. Not just with Violet and Zayden, but maybe with other Venon within the wards. Like, is this the communication method Jack used to know what to do with the lures later on in the book? I'm so hung up on how in the world Jack and potentially Varish or whoever else is with the Venon, how are they all communicating from Besgaeth with them outside of the wards? And it just, this has to be the answer because this is how the Venon are communicating with Violet and Zayden. I love this. I love where you're going. I could see that. The last thing I'll note here on the stream, where is this sunburned field Violet is in these nightmares? She references it in every single one of her dreams. And I have to wonder, are we going there? Is the sage projecting her in a certain location? I was trying to see if there was any descriptions about Bisgaith to see if it was almost like a premonition that this is where they will be in Bisgaith. I didn't get any clues about that. It very well might be, but I don't, I just don't know. Again, it could be that premonition. That's another second signet theory. My gut is telling me that this venom is actually infiltrating their minds while they're sleeping and it's more of a way of communication rather than a premonition. I fucking love this. Could it be the Barrens? Could it be somewhere in the Barrens, do you think? Very possible. That, that was kind of my thought there, where yeah. it's almost like going to the Venon's home turf because that's how they envision it or something like that. I could totally. Or honestly, because I know there's that one spot, and I can't remember if this is how it's described or if this is just my head canon. Like re- with Resin, I always kind of imagined it like kind of deserty wasteland. I don't think that's how it is, at least the front of it. I don't think that's how it's described because it's still in. No. Because remember the beautiful lake and the beautiful mountains that were really close by? Yep. So now it is a wasteland because of everything that happened there, but it was not previously. It was quite a lovely mountain area. (laughs) Well, then we can imagine that Zolia would be very similar too. So, And since they're using that as a base, then maybe it's Zolia? Maybe it's a field outside of Zolia? I don't know. Maybe. I'm just grasping at straws now. (laughs) Right. I do wonder if it's located in the Barrens, but it's one of those little details that I just wanted to call out there because she is in the same location each time. And we, as far as I know, have not seen this location yet in the books. Let's talk about something else I love, which is sexy time. It's my favorite. Zane's room sounds like <laughs> a fucking dream. There's big windows, thick 
AO, velvet drapes, wall-to-wall bookshelves, and a massive bed. I would sleep in here every night. I would not even fight it. I would be like, oh, darn, so sad. I guess I'll just sleep in here every night. No problem. It has such a delicious visual of Zayden sleeping peacefully next to Violet. Like she notes, there's such a vulnerability there. And especially with someone who looks like Zayden, who acts like Zayden, is just sleeping so peacefully. I just love it so much. There's just something so special about seeing the person you love next to you sleeping. It's just this another sweet moment that all of us can relate to and I know I can feel it definitely like when I'm seeing my husband I love looking over in the morning and seeing Brett sleeping and then sometimes he'll like sense me looking at him and he'll open his eyes and he's like the fuck are you doing (laughs) and I'm just like I'm like, hi. <laughs> so there has been some, I'll say, confusion slash criticism as to why Violet initiates sex right after getting mended and tortured for five days straight. Wait, Nicole, was she tortured for five days? She was tortured for five days days Lexi oh my gosh why did you not bring this up in the last episode I really fucked up I've disappointed you all I deeply apologize but this line right here says it all to me to answer this criticism she says quote alive I'm alive and that's exactly what I want to feel this is her writer mentality coming out more and more and more also remember that he has been so careful with her in the last few days I mean obviously she's been tortured for five days he needed to be so this line quote and I need him to to do exactly that break to lose the gentle kisses and the cautious touches and take me with the full force that I know he's capable of no holding back no soft and slow I'm molten but that is right there like she is like I'm done she also does not ever like being treated like she's breakable this has been a common theme throughout her entire life as we know it at least being in her head I think that it makes so much sense that right after that she's like I am alive I want to feel the most alive and also I think that this sex scene is so brushed over in the book I mean with the throne scene and the emotional intensity of the shower scene I can see why but I love this scene I love this scene I think it's perfect. You know, I will be honest. I kind of forgot about it after my first read through just because there was so much else going on. Like, I know. How did you forget about it? I'm going to just talk about a few tropes that are in the scene that make me really just absolutely fall to my knees. I love it when the couple in the romance novels wake up and the guy is already rock hard for her. Like, that is just such a good trope. I love it so much. It's such a like. I'm pretty sure that's just something that happens. I know. It's it's like every morning. (laughs) Every morning? Isn't, yeah, maybe I should not say that. (laughs) (laughs) This kind of reoccurring theme, I'll say, immediately makes me laser focused when I am reading. Another thing I was not expecting to love as much when I was reading romance, like when I very first started, was when a girl gives guy head. This is not something you see in every single romance novel, but like, this shit is delicious to me. I, no pun intended. I didn't know I would enjoy it so much. And I think I'd probably like it because like normally when it happens, it's like the guy is losing control. He growls, he moans, he has some kind of like head thrashing back or whatever moment. If one year ago me knew that this was something that I would have read multiple books involving a scene with this and loved it and also talking about it openly on a podcast in front of thousands of people, I would not believe that. One year ago me would be mortified and yet here we are I love it I love those parts in books they're great all I'm going to say in response to that I promise no spoilers here I am rereading the Akatar series and I just finished a particular scene about a different kind of fun that has a big influence on my favorite things and I, I can't say any more that's spoiler free but oh man I'm at some good parts <laughs> I know exactly which part you're talking about 
I'm not saying head is my favorite part of any book series. I'm just saying I enjoy it more than I thought I would. I just love the emotional and the physical buildup where it starts out really slow and not even anything else crazy happens because it's just part of the tension buildup. I love that. We're going to cover a chapter of that in just a few minutes. I'm so excited. <laughs> I do have some advice for Zayden. And that is if you do not want a woman to climb you like a tree, please do not say, quote, you're not recovered enough for the things I want to do to you. I would immediately be like, I'm recovered. I'm fine. (laughs) Take me. I would have done exactly what Violet did. 100%. This is not a full blown death of me moment. So I'm not adding it to the count. However, it is at least something enough to bring to the surface. He says, quote, are you trying to kill me? To which she replies, Yes. (laughs) He says this multiple times in Fourth Wings. And of course, we have the ever so ominous death of me. But this is the first time she's responding with, yeah, I do. Like, absolutely. Now, I do think that Zayden's love for Violet in some way will be his downfall. Whether that is the downfall has already had its arc. You know, he is a venom now because of his love for her. I do think it's going to go a step further. The more and more I'm reading this book, I need to come to terms with the fact that I do think he is going to die. I don't think he's going to make it out of this series alive. I think he will, but it is going to be one long journey. The gravity one last time really got me. Like the Brennan. Yeah. Yeah. The gravity shit is really ominous to me. But I love that Zayden is like, no, you're still healing. And then Violet's response is to quote, suck him deeper and then says, I want you feral. I love this girl. I love her so much. I want to add this to the list of things I love in books, but would be a no, no for me in real life is when Zayden grabs the pillow and throws it to the ground and says, I want them to hear. I want them to know your mind. Like that is so fucking hot. And if a guy did that to me in real life, I would be like, I would zip my mouth shut. I'd be like, I'm not making a peep. Oh, what a guy. Nicole, I'm a little bit surprised that you aren't mentioning something that I picked up on during the scene or I'm speculating a little bit about. I'm like 98% positive Zayden is reading Violet's intentions in this scene. Not in a privacy invasion kind of way, but like a double check that he's not taking advantage of her. When she says that she wants him feral, the thought barely escapes her before he acts, which yes, could easily just be eagerness but I think it better fits how he reads thoughts. It's like the thought before the actual thought. And then there's even the lines like, gods, he knew exactly what I needed without me telling him. Again, that could definitely just be their chemistry. But I think he is very subtly reading her intentions as that little double check that yes, this is indeed okay for him to do right now. I cannot believe I missed that. And yes, we're a little preoccupied. (laughs) I was thinking about a blowjob scene. That's what I I did not catch that, but I think you're 100% right. I definitely think that's intentions moment. Last thing I will say on this scene, I also want to point out that there is one more tie to the word sweet and Zayden. And if you want my full Venom breakdown, Venom dream as to why the word sweet is attached to Zayden so much, listen to episode four for my full rant. But Violet says, quote, it just gets better, hotter, sweeter until there is no world outside of him. Again, just another tie into that word sweet. But let's move on to the assembly meeting, a much less fun scene in my opinion. Why do you think that there was such a point in moment where she's looking at the chair or chair throne? Is this the throne? I'm assuming it is. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yes. It's just never called a throne. Until she realizes that it is essentially the throne. And she probably wants... Yeah, yeah. It says that half of the wood is walnut and shiny and the other half looks like it's been burned 
and then polished and sealed. Is this just about the burning of Eurasia? Did this happen during the burning of Eurasia? Is this to symbolize the burning of Eurasia? Is this priming for the throne scene? Why do you think that there is such a pointed moment where she's looking at this throne? I am really curious about only half of the throne being burned. Is this simply a consequence of Arisha burning and it's a visual representation or is there more of a meaning here with half of the throne being burned I'm guessing this is more of a symbolic meaning here in literature yes it was burned but it also wasn't and it's still functioning still standing still powerful just like Arisha itself. I love that it's burned and then polished and sealed. Like that means that they didn't bother repainting or sanding it down or whatever. Like they wanted to seal the burn in there. Part of its history. Yes, exactly. So friendly reminder, here are the assembly members before we cover them in detail in today's archive section. We have Hawknos or Ulysses. We have Suri, Felix, Battleaxe or Kylan, Trissa, Brennan, and Satan. Now, the assembly is giving me, mine is Satan and Brennan, the, oh, the younger generation thinks that they can save the world. Like, you know, there's like such a common theme in a lot of fantasy, honestly, in a lot of books that we love, where it's like the younger generation, they are the ones who see the board the clearest. I mean, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, I mean, you could go on and on. But these people are unhinged to the nth degree. It is wild how they act sometimes. Now, this is probably nothing, but there is a quiet woman with shiny black hair, and she says something about the journal. She says, quote, but if you can translate it, then there's a chance we can secure and it cuts off. Again, probably nothing because they're talking about Eurasia, thus saving a lot of lives. I'm assuming they're probably talking about the Wardstone. We can secure the region, whatever. But there is a lot of people getting cut off in the last few stretches in this book, honestly, in this book as a whole, really. And it just feels like every time they are cut off, they're about to say something really important. And Rebecca, being the master of focus, says, oh, hey, here's this thing. Oh, no, we're going to focus on this over here instead. And I think it was Ulysses who who cut her off, which is infuriating because that guy sucks. But I'm just wondering if there's something beyond Erasia that they're talking about securing. Again, I don't think so, but I just wanted to call it out. I love so many things about our girl Violet, but this is a bit of a moment for Violet here. How did she not know Zayden was the seventh assembly member and the Duke of Erasia? Like, our girl is so intelligent. She is so smart. He was sitting on the chair slash throne at the beginning of this book. He is one of the leaders of a revolution. He is living in his house, which is a fortress. It's huge. I, I just love that she's like this brilliant fucking woman. And yet she's like, is this yours? <laughs> like, this is you? Like, I get it. She's been very distracted. Her entire world has flipped upside down. But that was just a moment where I was like, oh, Violet. I think of it as when you're in the presence of someone big, but you don't really recognize them as that. Like, Violet got to know Zayden while they were both at Bazgayat. That's where they fell in love. That's where they really got to know one another. And now seeing him in this space as an assembly member in his own home, it's still pretty foreign to her. So I can see how it took the gears a little long longer to work but yes I'm, I'm also a little bit surprised that it didn't click until maybe if it clicked like at the very beginning of the book like that would have made a little bit more sense for our girl but yes <laughs> this is totally not the same thing but this all kind of reminds me of when I started dating a guy during my very brief stint living in LA back after college and my roommate told me after I had been on multiple dates with this guy that he was a really big child actor and in films that we all know and love from the 90s like you all would absolutely know them and I had no idea like no idea 
and of course it's LA everybody's been an actor or something the fact that I wasn't and working at a restaurant like really threw people off I know this is not the same thing but it really made me think of like that naiveness about the person that you're dating and like I had a real wake-up moment where it's like oh (laughs) I remember you calling me and telling me who this person was and I screamed absolutely screamed oh Oh, man he's a great guy I hope he's doing well these days what a life you've lived my god (laughs) Ryan Gosling I mean (laughs) well he just pretended to be my boyfriend that's a whole other story (laughs) for a Q&A podcast episode that we'll tell someday I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a is Dane lying or truthing in this episode. We have been very candid, especially at last episode, discussing at length Dane's redemption arc and truly believing that it is a honest redemption arc. Now, we have also discussed at length the parallels between Kath's breath, other dragons, and those of who are connected to what we believe dark magic. Through wondering if Dane is somehow being controlled by leadership, there is no cure, there's only control. I do not think he is knowingly evil. I do not think he is knowingly associated with dark magic. I think if it was, it'd be like him just being controlled like puppet strings in the background. But twice in this scene, it is brought up that Kath is the one who vouches for Dane. Now, this is commonplace for, you know, writers to trust each other through giving the seal of approval from their dragon, but it is mentioned twice, and that really made my ears perk up. So is Kath lying or truthing slash being controlled? This is the only, only supporting point that I can cling to when it comes to whether Dane is telling the truth or not, or where his loyalties really do lie. Again, like you said, like, I don't think that he actually knows that he's a Venom, if he was, but... There, there's something going on with Kath. And the way that it is emphasized multiple times that Kath vouches for him, just like you were saying, Nicole, and we already suspect something is up with Kath based on his bad breath from the beginning of the book. There's some puzzle pieces here and we don't have the full picture yet, but there is something going on that we're keeping an eye on. We can't skip over the fact that Zayden can also vouch for Dane, but he can't say it right here because no one knows how he could truly vouch for Dane. So he might be relying a little bit more on Kath in this instance versus his own ability to be able to vouch for them. So maybe that's where this extra emphasis on Kath is coming from here too. But again, Kath had bad breath and the only other dragons that we know of who had bad breath are Solus and Bade. And we talked a lot about those two dragons in our last few episodes. Can you imagine if this was just like an offhanded written thing for like character building, for world building, like dragons sometimes just have bad breath. And Rebecca Yarrow sees that the internet is losing their fucking mind over and ever. Everyone be like, the bad breath means it's better. Like I would have such a chuckle at the dinner table with my husband if I was Rebecca Yarrow. You know, right? Oh man. I have to wonder, with Dane having a mind signet, don't you think that he would be particularly good at shields or at least recognize how important they are at keeping them up? I feel like he should have had his shields in place a little bit more when Zayden approached him. Now, of course, like Varish was dying and Nora had just died as well. But I feel like Dane should have had his shields locked in place a little bit more to prevent Zayden or someone else with the mind signet to infiltrate him. Last little notes here from the assembly meeting. I giggled as Zayden begrudgingly giving Dane credit when it comes to fourth wing. Like, good for him. Our characters are growing. (laughs) And then also Zayden specifically does not include himself in the journal heist explanation. Quote, Jacenia helped Violet and her squad steal the 
journal for instructions on how to use the wardstone. I don't know if he is very specifically not including himself or if it's a little bit of an oversight, but just something that I pointed out there. I also have a question about the scars on Zayden's back based on the information that we learned here. The three inch scar over his heart represents him taking responsibility for Violet, of course, and obviously he has his 107 of the same length on his back. Wait a second. 107 three-inch scars on one person's back? I guess I originally thought they were only like an inch or so, and this paints a whole different picture about what it looks like. How is that possible to have that many scars on one person's back and it like be able to tell that they're individual scars and it's not just an entire one big scar on his back? At that point, it would just be like one, two, three, four, like, you know, like the five with like the cross. Like the, I guess so. Like it would just look like a tally mark on the back. Like I always pictured it like slashes and like Me some too. over the others and stuff like Me that. Me too. I think that looks a lot cooler rather than just like tally marks. Yeah, exactly, but... My math wasn't mathing. It's totally possible, but just a little little nugget that I noticed now, there. You know I'm about to go and draw on a piece of paper 107 <laughs> three-inch scars and see how big it is. I can't believe you have that kind of time. <laughs> don't, but I would make time for this math. With the whole like scar and geometry part of that aside... <laughs> I just love the inverted representation that his two different types of scars have. 107 for loyalty to Navarre and one for loyalty to Arisha. I just think that's very, very poetic. I also love that this is the one that he chose to have. It's very poetic to their relationship, right? Like the 107, he obviously had a choice, but not really. It was die or do this. And also, I really want to know, what is the Tyrish custom behind this? Is it just a mark with a dagger on, on your body? Or is there some kind of magic? Is this like a really different, simpler kind of rune? Like, is there any magic involved in this Tyrish custom as well? Or is it just a scar mark? through a blade. I don't know. I'm guessing it's more of a scar mark just because there was so much confusion around blood magic. And this, in my mind, would kind of count towards blood magic. I'm thinking that it is definitely more of just a tierish culture thing that is so embedded in their culture. So when it's done, it has so much weight to it. It is a binding contract, like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Now, here's what I will say in Battle Brief when Re is like blood magic, like, are you like, whoa, she has this moment where she's like, she says, are you sure? And then there's this description of her face where it's almost like, like horror. And I wonder if there's some yeah. kind of like fable from her town about blood magic. And like, she knows something more about blood magic than there is I think that this is not the only I don't even know if I can say only time because I don't know if we even see blood magic in this in this stretch because obviously it didn't work with raising the words but I do think blood magic is going to play some kind of role in our story I could see it playing a role in the story from the venom side of things that this is like some like foreshadowing that yes it might exist but we do not touch it (laughs) interesting I like where this is going or maybe with resurrection maybe with Brennan somehow Maybe we are going to talk about the rune scars and his palm in a little bit here. Oh, I'm excited. Well, first of all, let's talk about Andarna waking up. I missed our girl. I did too. I'm so happy. First of all, Nicole and I have speculated a lot, a lot, a lot about when Violet's second signet manifests and how we lean toward it happening after Andarna wakes up. And this right here is a supporting point to our reasoning. The way in which the bond shimmers when Andarna wakes up and Violet feels whole for the first time since Andarna fell asleep. It makes it feel like they're 
Bond itself has been sleeping as well. And if Violet hasn't felt like she's complete since Andarna's been asleep, that just makes it seem like her signet wouldn't have manifested before now. Agreed. And it really ties back to the same reasoning why we were like, I don't think I see dead people is her second signet because she is sleeping. It would also mean the same for precognition, at least in results to the dreams so if the dreams do have anything to do with her second signet it wouldn't make a lot of sense for the same reasons as we said in last episode in results to she was sleeping when violet was in her torture era i agree with you completely i think the venom dreams are from the venom side of things i don't think they're from precognition i don't think they're from her second signet i i agree with you now we are going to be on high high second signet alert from here on forward in this book yes exactly And as we head to the valley above Arisha where all the dragons are, I want to remind you that the reason this environment still seems like it's fall instead of winter like the town below is because Rebecca has confirmed that the more dragons there are equal warmer weather. So because there are so many dragons now in Arisha, it's going to be warmer in their concentrated area, aka this valley that they now call home. So that is why it doesn't feel like winter. It feels more like fall in this area of Arisha Versus the town below where it's clearly winter there. So there's been some confusion about all of that. Rebecca has confirmed in an interview that is why the weather is so different in such a similar area. We get another and Darna is a different color hint when Violet first sees her here. Oh, I was just so excited. Quote, it must be an adolescent thing that they're so shiny she reflects some of the color around her. While I suspected there was something up with her color before, now is when I knew there was a big mystery around what breed or what color Andarna is. We'll discuss her color a lot more later, but for right now, we'll label it as pearlescent. Violet begins describing their bond and Andarna's power as pearlescent, which I just absolutely love. It is so perfect for her. I assume that Violet doesn't think too much of it not being black like her bond with Taryn who is of course a black dragon because for one Violet arguably knows more about younger dragons than anyone and she barely knows much at all she just chalks this up to an adolescent thing and number two pearlescent it really does capture Indarna's personality too so I could see her thinking that the bond represents more of the personality rather than the literal color of her dragon. I also for those of you who needed a visual aid of what pearlescent looks like it's basically like a white but then the shine around it reflects any colors that are near it and like so it's like a rainbow it's like it's it's a beautiful rainbow and depending on the light it has different colors and Mm -hmm. if you need a visual go ahead and look it up and you'll have a big smile on your face because you'll be like of course that's Andarna's bond color in addition to Andarna's coloring we also get a new character trait from Andarna and that is her hunger levels so Rebecca Yaros has mentioned that she modeled adolescent Andarna's eating patterns after her three teenage boys who were always looking for food maybe not in the form of sheep but definitely snacks my husband is one of three boys and I absolutely believe this my mother-in-law has shared what their grocery budget used to be when the boys were growing up and it is equivalent to a few herds of sheep so yes I absolutely (laughs) believe this I also love this little tidbit of info from Taryn 
adolescents they're insufferable when hungry it's like you know what me too like I'm not an adolescent anymore but I am Brett and I actually have a we have a joke so I get hangry like you know just like hunger angry he gets anxious so he gets hungry and anxious and whenever he is even remotely hungry I'm like here's some snacks go 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 (laughs) after we do these recordings which are usually between three and four hour sittings Nicole if she didn't eat like a full breakfast usually it's after lunch at this point it's like we have to do maybe a few little things like scheduling or or talk about a few of the emails that we receive, something along those lines. And you can just tell like her hanger is starting to come out. And she's just like says a million times like, I need to eat. And it's like, OK, OK, we'll hurry this up really quickly. But while we're on the phone together, we have to finish this. Can you tell I have my smoothie with me right here today? But it is now empty. So the, cl- the clock is ticking. <laughs> I really do feel for Andarna, though, in this Whole, honestly, this whole book, really, we learned that during her dreamless sleep, because she kept waking up, I love this dragon anatomy, the second set of muscles along the front of her wings did not form properly, or I don't even think they formed at all, because Brennan can't mend what does not exist. So with some strength and conditioning, she will be able to fly, but she will never be able to bear a rider. I really do think that her and Violet are going to fly together in some super heartfelt big moment in this book. Like, yeah, exactly. It'll be like this huge like music swells tears flow it's two-pointed not to be foreshadowing I absolutely agree but again this is one of those unexpected twists I definitely wasn't expecting in this series but I just love it because it is unexpected this sad diagnosis offers so much mystery around Violet and Andarna's future together it is also very convenient that Violet will obviously be writing Taryn for the foreseeable future but I agree that the bond between Violet and Andarna is too special and unique for her not to eventually write Andarna maybe Violet's Signet can somehow mend her in a way that Brennan's can't, where she can mend what didn't previously exist, or she can mend magic in a unique way that applies to dragons, or maybe she can amplify Brennan's power to do it. Again, just kind of tossing out all sorts of different ideas for Violet's second signet here. Or they're able to build a contraption to help Andarna support Violet's weight and flight, you know, like how to train your dragon style. I do agree that something is going to happen, but we just don't know what that will help these two to have that unique bond of of truly getting to ride your dragon. I'm just so excited. I really hope that happens. Oh my gosh, it would be so sad if not. You mentioned how to train your dragon and I burst into tears. Like that, <laughs> if that is the case, how that, I mean, first of all, that's my favorite movie of all time. It is also a dragon and not a wyvern. Proud of you, DreamWorks. But that style of mo because like what if Taryn does die and she has no other choice but to ride and Darna and that's like the moment where she figures something oh my god I'm unwell oh uh, my heart really does hurt for Andarna, but it also really hurts for Violet in this case because it's not her fault that it is her fault if that makes sense and Darna's wing not growing properly is a consequence of a sequence of events no one made anyone do anything during that crucial time around Resin difficult and necessary choices were made between Violet and Darna and Taryn and that has led us here So yes, I absolutely see how Violet blames herself, but there's really not anything different that could have been done within her power, at least, to make this end in anything else here. So I I really feel for her, but it's not her fault that it is her fault in this situation. Orisha has the cadets starting back at Writer's Quadrant 2.0. It was initially weird that 100 or so cadets just choose to leave Biscayeth and fight for the revolution, but then they're just like, back at school in a different capacity. It was a little like, I'll call it anticlimactic there. Now, hold on. 
I've got some math questions because okay. Bezgaith has over 600 people attending that school. And they keep on saying that Violet took half of the writer's quadrant at Bezgaith. But there's only a hundred cadets. So so it all depends on what part of the year it is because people die off so quickly. So we know between second and third years, there are approximately 250 of them, approximately. And then there are about, after threshing, are about a hundred or so new bonded writers. So you're right. Let's just say there are about 350 writers and they took about a hundred so yeah so it's not they took actually a third of Bezgaith writers quadrant not a half so there's four wings three sections per wing and each of those squads have 15 people in it but remember that was at the beginning of the year this is after threshing okay that's fair but still she only took a third of people yes she only took a third So we have a hundred cadets who got up and left and chose to fight for the revolution. And now they're back at school, which is a little bit jarring or not jarring, actually, because let's consider it. They are still in military training and they need to have the best possible training before they face off the Venon. I believe, too, that even though the Assembly and Arisha, they have definitely separated themselves from Navarre. Certain ways of life are embedded in their philosophies and in their society. Being back at school here is familiar and how they know about going about life. I definitely understand why Emeterio is having everyone run, which kicks their butts in altitude, which I totally get. We live in Colorado and running here can't be intense. When I visit my in-laws in California, I feel like I can run for miles on the boardwalk because I'm so used to running at elevation and I just feel like such a badass. They should be all drinking at elevation and see what that changes. (laughs) For those who don't know, your drinking tolerance is like minuscule when you're at elevation because of the altitude changes. So people come here and they're like, I'm just going to drink my normal amount. And then they're completely sloshed to quote Violet. I also understand the class's battle brief, runes, and flight maneuvers for obvious reasons. Then there's history class, which I can get behind to an extent since learning the truth about what happened previously can help them all prepare for the present. But my real question here is why physics class? If there was a war out there and I had to sit through an hour of fucking physics class every day instead of, I don't know, train, I would be so livid. I wouldn't do it. I would straight up not go to that class. And you tell science and math were not my thing in school. <laughs> that would be like my favorite class would be physics. Because then you'd, Why? Be, you'd, be learning, you'd be learning about like physics and, and dragons and like how, because that's the thing. You learn about the physics and your dragons and how they work together. No, that's, that's just just ball just take whatever you were going to talk about that and just put that into the flight maneuvers. Like take you don't we don't have time okay. to sit that's, around in this class. We need to learn by practice here. I will give you that. <laughs> put it in flight maneuvers and call it a day. I will totally give you that. I would want to train to learn how to fight Venom. That is a very much better That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, you're like, right, you're right. I, yeah, like there are only so many hours in the day. I think that the training needs to take a little bit more of a top priority than some of these standard Bisgaeth classes. That's all I'll say. <laughs> we do get back into a battle brief. And it is highlighted that they chose a theater to rebuild inside of House Ryerson. I am curious because it is very highlighted and even Violet questions it. She's like, why the fuck did they choose a theater? Like this, and I got a theater degree. I would love a theater. But maybe if we were in the middle of a war, that would not be the first thing I would choose to rebuild. But for this reason, did they want to rebuild it because it's the only place that can hold large meetings? Is it 
for and just another nudge at like Tierish culture and how they're much more about like oh arts and leisure as opposed to Bezgaith which is about like death and destruction and torture <laughs> I like to think that the theater represents what Arisha is trying to bring back. Like you said, culture, arts, entertainment, ultimately something to live for, you know? Like this is the reason why they're fighting It is to have beautiful things like this. One question I do have is do they have hired actors or ballet dancers or whatever like to perform in said theater or is the theater just like a ghost light like so for those of you who don't know when the theater is dark like there's nothing performing there there's nothing there it is tradition to put a ghost light on the theater which is basically just a singular Edison light bulb to ward off any theater ghosts it's just weird really (laughs) yes and let me tell you I've been in some very haunted theaters that shit does not work (laughs) let me tell you but like I wonder do they have artists performing there or is it just it's the assembly you know like ultimately yes they're leading the revolution but at the end of the day they all get dressed up and they go and they practice their play (laughs) ulysses like dons a dunce hat and puts on a shakespeare solo play (laughs) and felix is the narrator with his calming voice God, I'm I, I don't think the theater has actually been used. I think that it is a symbolic oh, no. representation. This is canon. Let's do canon now. I just got to like insert that disclaimer there because people are actually going to think that we are believing this. And I don't. And next thing you know, there's going to be fan fiction about the assembly's play. Oh, my God. I would read that. A series of short stories. Oh, man. The behind the scenes. Oh, my God. I'm dying. Back to things that we actually do get confirmed, though. This is canon. Is an Isles confirmation. In many previous episodes, we have wondered where the heck the Isles are. And in last episode, we mentioned that someone had pointed this section of the book out to us. This is in Battle Brief. Quote, the Isles, the five large and 13 smaller islands that surround the continent in every direction. Mystery solved. They are not to the north, south, east, or west. They are all the fuck around Navarre. I did a quick count, however. This is the fifth time that the Isles have been mentioned in this book alone. That's a lot. And the one millionth time in this podcast. (laughs) We got to represent those Isles. If we're not going to the Isles, I will be fucking shocked. I love that they get to choose their own section and squad leaders. Like, it made sense at Bezgaith that they were chosen for them, da 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 But I just, I love that it really shows that the assembly is like, we are teaching you to go to war and you need to be able to make decisions on your own. And it's not as, I'm not going to ever say that Bezgaith babied them by any means, but yeah. it was very much like, let me tell you where to look. Let me tell you what to believe. Whereas military, here, yeah. Very, very military training there, yes. Exactly. Whereas here, they're like, we're definitely military training you. However, we're also letting you be adults here. Like, and I, I just, I really enjoy that it goes to show the difference between how they're treating cadets and erasia versus the best guy follow the leader method there's a little line about brennan that i want to pull out early in the book i think in chapter two when he does the same motion of putting his hands up violet notices a rune shaped scar on his palm but now in battle brief when he does the same thing there's no mention of what is on his hand it could simply have just not included this in the description Or it is also possible that the rune scar is not there anymore. And if it isn't, what in the world does that mean for Brennan? What I'm saying is we're watching you, Brennan. There's something you're hiding from us and that rune scar is a hint. Oh, I love that a lot. Now, I also know she's sitting further back 
So True. maybe you just, maybe it's faded or maybe you can't really see it when she's that far away. But I want to know Brennan's secrets. I'm so excited. <laughs> in this battle brief, we learned that there was an attack at Samara four days ago after Bisguy's departure, but there was only one dragon present at the outpost. So we know that this means that Mira just missed them and she must have already taken off since Lilith flew to Samara and told Mira and the other writers about the big truth. That must mean that she left before this attack too. So anyway, just kind of getting some timelines there for all of us. Which means that there was only one dragon rider left at Samara? Woof. No, no, no. Because there was only half of the riders. We know that there are 18 dragon riders at stationed at Samara. So let's say that nine of them left Samara to go to Arisha. So that means that the other eight were out on patrol right now. And there was only one that was stationed at Samara at that moment there. Yep. Now, we do learn that the Venon are living in Zolia. They're heading out on like little missions, for instance, to go and destroy Anka. And then they go back to Zolia to recoup and chill. So what could this mean? Like, why are they using Zolia as the base, knowing that Zolia is also the house of the most amount of Venon knowledge, at least to our knowledge. It is the most amount of Venon books, the most amount of Venon tomes are all in Zolia at Cliffbane Academy. What are they doing? Like, do you think they're just like reading these and like trying to see what they know? Do you think they're just, I would destroy them if I was a Venon and, and destroy all the knowledge. I know that they took some, or at least as many as they could carry when they fled Zolia, when they fled Cliffsbane Academy. But like, I wonder if that's any reason why they are basing out of Zolia. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking that the Venon chose Zolia as their home base because it is one of Pormiel's biggest cities and it has all of the resources that they would need to use it as a base. Plus, it has great proximity within Pormiel. It's a prime location to start venturing out and taking over other towns and then coming back in and regrouping. Zolia is on the Stonewater River and there's been a concentrated recent activity going up the river and toward Navarre. So that might be another great reason why it's a prime location. They are gaining power for the big Navarre attack. I really do think that the more power they get, the more they're able to create wyverns. And it is just like they're just building and creating a full-blown army as they use all of this power that they've been draining through the surrounding areas. I also have to wonder, are they taking recruits? We know that Venon have previously targeted unbonded griffin flyers to tempt them with power. They could both be draining these poor meal lands and towns. Plus, they could also be recruiting and training Venon right there at, at Cliff Bain's Academy. Like maybe they're even chose Zolia because it has the Academy there. And we know that Venon have a full system with recruits and students and training and all of that. So why not do it all here? Fuck, I think you're right. Oh, man. So as we learn about the riot of dragons heading their way, they're in the middle of class and Taryn like bursts into Violet's mental archives and is like, there's a riot of dragons <laughs> heading their way. Also, does Taryn just have like like the good, good news where he gets every single bit of information like but 50 seconds before everyone else? It's like even Marb. It takes Brennan a second before he has like a full-blown That's So Raven moment where he like looks off to the side like he's talking to Marb and then comes back into a battle brief. But like, Taryn gets it way earlier so is it just because of Sigail which is highly possible but he can't communicate with her he just like feels her feelings but anyway I that was just oh I bet that's exactly what it is yeah I've been wondering maybe like Taryn was just further out because he's just the bigger more powerful dragon so maybe he had his own patrol out there 
But I do think that it's definitely Sigale. He picked up on Sigale and that's how he knew before anybody else. He is also just the bigger, more powerful dragon. So maybe he like has supersonic radar where everyone else just has like regular radar. But Arik says, can Tarn take Coda? And Violet's inner monologue says, quote, I don't even want the answer to that question. Do you think we're ever going to get a Tarn slash Coda battle in this series? I fucking My hope so. My gut. Clegane battle. <laughs> Clegane? <laughs> You know, my my gut does say yes, that we will see this, even though they're kind of sort of on the same side right now. They're extremely reluctant allies right now, though, Taryn and Coda. Plus, Coda knows Andarna's secret because he's the elder of their den. Remember that Violet does get that confirmation from him when she asks if he will light the fire as the black dragon representative. But I'm like, Violet, I don't really want to know the answer to this question because I I don't think Taryn would beat Coda. Like, ter- and Taryn's suspiciously quiet, which makes me believe he also doesn't think that he would win that right. battle either. I think yeah. you're right. I super think you're right. Now it's time to talk about our favorite older sister re-entering our story again. When you heard Tyne leads the riot, and by the way, we hear the audiobook says Tiny. However, Rebecca Yaros has confirmed that she uses Tyne. We're going to go with Tyne just for continuity sake so Taryn says Tyne leads the riot what did you think in this moment did you think that Mira was joining the revolution or attacking I thought for sure she was attacking but then I was thinking like once when she would see Brennan she would slip up and get extremely conflicted and there was going to be that whole reveal and and she was going to be literally switching sides or at least pausing her attack to learn some more information I was pleasantly surprised that she and this riot were joining the revolution But I was very, and am still very shocked, that Melgren just let them go. Speaking of shock, though, I couldn't believe when Taryn takes Tyne's throat just like solaces. Like, he says, like, don't worry, I'm not actually, like, you know, getting into the scales. But it's just like, whoa, whoa, dude. Taryn is like, I've had it. I'm in charge of a teenager now. I can't. I have no patience anymore. He just has had it with life. Now, I was also (laughs) very shocked when we heard about... Melgren just like letting them go. And I wonder, there's two headcanons that I have here really, which is simultaneously, one, it's face value. They let them go because they knew they were going to find out eventually. I mean, wyverns were dropping out of the sky. Like it was raining like it not it's raining men it was raining wyvern in that moment there's there's one side of taking it at face value which to be honest for me is kind of like plot bandages of like okay like let's move the story along this is a good way to do so which is yeah fine it's fine it's whatever we have to have some of those in, in a story as dense as this one but the other side of it is there is some kind of ulterior motive where you know they sent some people if melgren is in the venom breeding game they sent some people who are venom who they can control and they're almost like inside spies i don't think Mira is one of those people. I do think she's innocent here, but I could see that being the case so that they know what they're doing on that front. Yeah, the matter of fact way that the truth has come out among all of the writers, it's still a little hard for me to wrap my head around. And Violet feels this way too, because she repeats back to Mira, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but she repeats back to Mira, mom just told you. While it's explainable that there was a giant dead wyvern leadership couldn't keep hidden and that letting them go was a safer option than making them stay and do who knows what damage. Like, yes, that explanation, it makes sense, but it still feels like the bow was wrapped up a little too nicely, you know? I believe that Melgren let them go, plus didn't punish the cadets' families for their desertion because he has seen a future battle where all of these writers are needed. I'm not talking about Samara. We know these writers were not at the Samara battle premonition, 
but there must be a future battle he saw right around this time that made him feel like it was okay to let these writers go in order for the future battle to even be able to happen and therefore that they could win. I also like your unhinged Vin and Melgren theory too, like like infiltrating, like who knows? Who knows? I'm really struggling with the idea that Melgren is in the Venom game. I definitely I think Atos is. I don't know about Melgren just because of the end Melgren scenes that we get from Athbeen to the ending battle. It just doesn't give me I am working with these guys. I agree. And I also I've said it on previous episodes, and this is just a really great quote here from Sirius Black. I'm paraphrasing here. But not all people are divided into good people and death eaters. In this case, too, not all people are divided into good people and venom. There are definitely some bad characters who are not siding with the venom. We got our Cornelius Fudges. We got our... Oh, we yeah. got all of the we got our Dolores Umbridges and all of that here too. So I, I do, do think, think that, in this instance our Dolores Umbridge is vetted. No, I do think Okay, so. yes, our Dolores Umbridge comparison. Yes. So in this case, Melgren is Rufus Scrimger and he is definitely not a venom i just i don't think that he is because again it goes back to a not everybody is a venom and that would feel a little cheap of a storytelling if all of this leadership ended up being a venom i do think again i think barish was and i do think at atos either he is or he's working very closely with them with his own agenda but yeah but atos is also stupid enough to be in the venom game whereas i don't think melgren is i think melgren's a lot smarter than we've seen him be yes I think that we're just starting to really get to know him and he'll play a bigger role. Yep. Fuck. I'm excited for that. I can't wait to see more Melgren. But oh, how times have changed. In the Samara scene with Mira and Violet, this is way back in part one, she says that Mira is the only person she shares unconditional love with. And that it, it includes her pool of people being also Zayden like she did not have unconditional love with him then however in this scene with Mira she reaches out to Zayden to confirm what Mira is saying and to see that it is truth quote not because I don't trust my sister but because I trust him more this really just shows how far they have come in their relationship I'm so proud of them I'm going to respectfully counter that because I think that Violet would have said the same thing back in Samara about trusting Zayden when it comes to anything Arisha or revolution related that's kind of what I thought is that I do think that she still had that unconditional love for him now they certainly have gotten a long way in their relationship because now they can actually admit it to one another but I do think that just the groundwork was laid up out so well in fourth wing to lead us to this where she would have said the same thing otherwise but okay I can vibe with that my heart once again aches for Violet when she admits to Mira that she needed her. Like, ugh, the secrets are out and she can finally be honest with her sister. And I'm just really proud of how Mira owns her mistakes and she apologizes over and over again. She doesn't chastise Violet about not telling her. She only says she's so sorry she wasn't there when her little sister needed her most. And, you know, as a big sister, I, I really feel that the guilt and disappointment and not living up to what you're supposed to be for someone you love more than anything and realizing that you fell short and having to make it up to them in that way of just like I am so sorry and I love that that is what Mira is doing here versus gaslighting her sister or doing anything else that she could have easily done here you have never fallen short to me Oh, thanks, Nikki. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. Why have oh, I cried man. twice in this episode? This is not an emotional set of chapters. 
Nicole. Oh, Nicole, I just want to hug you right now. Why do you, why do you live so far away? Stupid 30-minute okay. drive. <laughs> That's not far. We used to live thousands of miles away from each we other. We did, yes. But speaking of heartfelt, wonderful sibling moments, Mira seeing Brennan for the first time. Now, we have to remember that Mira and Brennan were always the closer of the three. You know, you know how they say with like any groups of three, there's always two who are closer and there's always kind of like a third who's who's left out to dry. Violet was always the third. She was younger by several years and Brennan and Mira were always much closer in age. So of course, Violet and Brennan, they were expecting this beautiful, heartfelt reunion where, you know, Mira like runs into his arms and hugs him. But I love that she punches him instead. This is honestly so fair. And it gives me such Ron and Hermione vibes. I love it. Wait, like when he returns after Harry encounters a silver doe? Yeah, like because Ron like walks in the and she like literally Harry has to cast Portego because she's about to murder him. Just, you know, maybe take like the love aspect out of it, (laughs) like the romantic love and maybe just insert sibling love I get that yeah for sure I think I laughed out loud when I read this for the first time like of course Mira punches Brennan for their big reunion like so fitting just so fitting and then later on when she's like yeah well it wasn't the first time I broke his nose <laughs> like that's such a like sibling fight thing like you know we never got into fist fights however there was one time that you tackled me to the ground but honestly I deserved it so it wasn't even that big of a deal so, quick story so I went to this like amusement park for lack of a better term and I got a shocky pen and I was so excited to prank my older sister I was like oh my god I'm gonna prank her I'm gonna give her this pen she's gonna you know whatever so I give her the pen and I'm and she's like cool little sister a pen wow so exciting and I'm like click it she clicks it the next thing I know I am on the ground and let's see us tackle me to the ground I so have like, no recollection of this. Oh, this is a core memory for me. That's when I learned the consequences of my own actions. I will say that our cousin Allison, she tackled me big time at her rehearsal in the snow. And there's like a live action shot of her literally tackling <laughs> me. And like the look on my face is just absolutely priceless. We might have to post that to social media or something oh my if God. I can find it. Can we please? I love that photo so much. We love you, Allie. All right. Well, speaking of the family, the family is back together again. And right before we focus on these three Soringale siblings, really quickly, we learn Riddick's last name, which is Gamlin. And it is Old Norman for word of old, which I just found to be highly hilarious. But I love this line back to our three sibs. Quote, and suddenly I feel 10 again, the smallest personality in the room of giants. I'm going to hop on some neurological bullshit for two seconds because I'm going back to my roots. When you are around people again, after being apart with them for a while, who were core in your upbringing, it is natural for your subconscious mind to sink back into old behavioral habits from when you were younger. When Mira and Brennan are fighting, the family is back together again. It is so neurological beautiful. I love this moment where Violet immediately goes back to being the quiet scribe sister in this room of writer giants. Now, Brennan is also blatantly ignoring her, demanding to switch cloths because he's covered in blood, which is gross. And I bet you anything, this is also not the first time that she gets ignored by these, quote, giant personalities. Her inner monologue even says, quote, yep, definitely morphed back to being the silent little sister. I love seeing this, you know, moment of falling back in time for Violet but then I love her fight against it because she has changed a lot and when she says like 
she like lashes out on Brennan. She says like, switch your damn cloth, da 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 And it says, quote, Brennan is looking at me as though he has never seen me before. Dude needs to open his eyes and start giving his little sister way more credit because he just still sees her as this 10-year-old little girl who's training for the scribes. Like he really has not seen her as a full-blown writer unless she is mangled and almost dead. <laughs> so in this scene, however, Mira says to Brennan, quote, let us watch our father's heart give out because your death broke him. And Brennan comes back with, quote, our father would understand what I've been doing. I very much agree with Brennan. I do think he would. We are both very much in agreement, Lexi and I, that Papa Sorengale was killed by leadership for the things that he figured out post Brennan's death. It probably somewhere in his research, he figured the fuck out of what's been going on. So I bet he would be very proud of Brennan for what he is doing. Do you think that Brennan's death, however, sent Papa Sorengale on his research mission? Or do you think he was already putting pieces together prior to the Battle of Erasia? Brennan did not think that his dad knew based on the conversation that he and Violet had in chapter two or chapter three at the beginning of this book. I think that their dad knew about what was going on before the Battle of Arisha, before Brennan's quote-unquote death, because the rebellion was going on. And I think that he is someone who is very intelligent, and he would have understood the reasons why better than the propaganda that was certainly being fed to Navarre. That's my theory, is that he definitely knew all of this before, and then after Brennan's death is when he really started going down the rabbit hole. Possibly that's when he started bringing in the feather tail research, whatever happened with the second Crovelin uprising, and there's a lot more pieces that he started putting together based on what he learned right around the rebellion time, or before it. Now there's another mystery, or mystery et, I'll call it, in this scene. Brennan's screams at Mira, you weren't killed. And then she replies, neither were you. But he was or was he? And it was a full resurrect. Like, was it was this a full resurrection situation? We, we speculated this a lot in Fourth Wing, and I do believe both of us have fully changed our minds on this. But in Fourth Wing, we were adamant that it was not a full resurrection. Like, Brennan was on the brink of death, and that's how Naolan resurrected him, and da-da-da-da-da. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lex. We've both changed our mind on this, and we do think that it was a full resurrection and Brennan was fully killed and has since been resurrected whether that's by Naolin or this rune or whatever and honestly with the not so subtle use of this new last name Acerai which literally means resurrection I really do think that this was a full-blown resurrection situation and Naolin channeled from the source to do it thus turning Venon I'm like 90% in agreement I still do need to know how the runes on his hand came into effect were they part of the resurrection process? Do they keep him tethered to life? Is it rather ominous that the Venon activate the Wyvern with the same kind of use of runes? It is rather ominous that the Venon activate the Wyvern with the use of runes, which has led the fandom to speculate that Brennan is like a human version of a Wyvern that Naolin created. Does it mean, was it like he was literally dead, like literally dead? Or does it mean that he was on that like... 0.1% left of life. I think that's what it was. So I'm going to call that a regular resurrection and not a full-blown resurrection. He's dead, but he's mostly dead. <laughs> I think I'm leaning more and more towards full-blown resurrection. Maybe this will be another bet for book three. We'll see. So 
Zayden sneakily walks into this room and we get another sibling mention from him. He says, quote, and to think, I used to wish I had siblings. I really think with just how many offhanded, I wish I used to have siblings or I have no siblings. So there's Garrick is the closest thing to a sibling. Da, 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 da. I really think that his mom has another kid with someone else and Zayden has a half sibling. Now, is this going to be a Sloan situation where the sibling comes in and is a dick and a half? I could see that, yeah, like where they're just two very different people. Now, unlike Sloan and Liam, Sloan, part of the reason why she's such a bitch is because her brother died and she is channeling that anger at the people who she blames for his death. Now, here's another question I have, and it, it, we need to broaden our minds for this question ever so slightly, and that is, what if this is a full-blown sibling and before Mama Ryerson left – she was pregnant with Fen's second child. So what if the sibling would be after the Eurasian throne? Now, this would be a 10 years younger sibling than him. And also, Zayden is the firstborn, so he would most likely have access to the Eurasian throne unless they have different rules here. No, because her only duty was to make sure that there was one child who reached age 10. So, okay, so... But what so if it was like a, oops, got pregnant, and then I would dipped. have no idea what that means. Yeah, that's that's foreign to you. <laughs> My guess, however, is that there was no love lost between Zayden's mom and Fen Ryerson. And I say that because she clearly wanted to get the heck out of there as soon as her duty allowed her to. I'm going to guess that she and Fen were not having a lot of fun in the lead up to her departure. Now, who knows? Who knows? But that's just my guess. Like, there's just no love. There was no love. There was no real connection between them. But, and she just wanted to piece out of there as fast as she could. I, however, am willing to bet that his mom is from Poor Meal and she's Poor Million. I wouldn't even be shocked if she is a Venon, that she turns out to be one. But I think that it makes more sense with everything we know about her, which certainly isn't much, but everything that we do know. And the Ryerson House's warm relationship with Poor Meal, especially with their royalty. She did what she was duty bound to do with the Ryersons and then she left because she hates Navarre and went on to live her best life and then have another kid. I want to see Zayden have to deal with a preteen half-sibling with the I hate you all Sloan energy. Like that would just be, that'd be so much better than the ex- energy that we get from Kat I'm gonna be honest <laughs> I could totally see that I could definitely see I do think now to quote Zayden you do not have to love someone or even like them to fuck them so maybe Zayden's dad and mom had like angry sex one night they were so but mad this they've been together for more than 10 years true that's I don't know I just I don't I don't called who passion knows, I don't Lexi <laughs> Cool. Um, they were married for more than 10 years beforehand. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wow, what a hopeful glimpse at my future. Thanks. Just saying. Let's talk about Zayden and Violet because I love this moment. Violet comes up to Zayden. This is right after he says, like, I to think I wish I had siblings. He's standing in the doorway. She comes up to him and she says, hi. And he replies back with, hi. And I'm going to just pull out another Gilmore Girls reference. This is the hi, hi, hi moment with Rory and Jess in season three or four if you know you know it's not as good as Kirk in the Box but it's pretty damn close I am however dying at Mira and Brennan's responses to this moment of passion between Zayden and Violet first off Brennan saying really right in front of me like this is giving such a like you're my best friend and you're dating my sister vibes I know that they're not best friends but they've been working together very 
closely. They're on the assembly together. Shouts to that trope. I actually love it way more than I thought I would. But Mira saying, this is tame for them. You can't burn that shit out of your head. It kills me. Okay, listen, I get that this is a romance book. Obviously, from our earlier discussion in this episode, come on, you two. You gotta keep it in your pants. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Violet's, her siblings are right there. And she just completely forgets when Zayden comes into the room, just like melting into him and just completely forgetting about her siblings, like right there. You two need to learn some boundaries. Like really, these two lovebirds need to learn some boundaries. You would be absolutely insufferable to be around when you're making out and oogling each other, ignoring everyone else in the room. And Nicole, if you and Brett were like this, I would never, ever see you. (laughs) The next time it's just the three of us, I'm climbing that man like a tree just to piss you off actually no based off of this earlier podcast you guys know i am not a pda kind of person yeah, in that way that makes me cringe. No, you know what? you should do that and just see like how much he cringes because he is such an observant like people pleasing person that he would be so self-conscious about me being in the room because guess what he has boundaries he does he really does I might try this just as a social experiment to see what happens. We'll see. These reactions, however, do really just show how much Zayden trusts Violet. Violet says, quote, I need the blood of the six most powerful riders. Just like out of context. They're like, the fuck? Brennan's eyebrows shoot up. Mira looks like she swallowed sour milk. I'm sorry, Lexi. What was what was the eyebrow shoot up that you just gave? <laughs> animate all of it you know that was perfect oh my god now Zayden however does not bat a fucking eye he just immediately trusts her yeah I love this too he just fully supports and trusts her expertise that's what she also needs like she has been really self-doubting and questioning herself and she needs his full support and he knows that and I'm again proud of them yeah They've really grown a lot. They're about to do some going back a few steps in a few chapters, but you know, I'm proud of them for what they Gotta hold on to this while we can. Yes, exactly. Even though I was just telling them that they need boundaries. They certainly do. The two can coexist. I can be both proud of them for how much they love and support each other. And they need some serious PDA boundaries. Fuck (laughs) on the floor. (laughs) So... Zayden, however, we're getting into the Raising the Wards, at least attempt number one. And Zayden, he does start taking some major L's right now. So I am all for the protective love interest, you know, trope, like not my woman, you bitch, that kind of stuff. Some Molly Weasley in there for you, which was weird. But however, blatantly ignoring Violet's decision, or at least her choice in the matter here, this is a major L for our guy Zayden. Everything with Viscount Takaris and just basically saying absolutely that that's not happening it's just mm. do you think that Zayden's betrothal with Kat and Takaris's lingering I'll say pissiness has anything to do with it and that is why he's really and truly keeping Violet from that situation because he knows that it is a lot bigger than her just wielding lightning that there's a lot of extra context that he doesn't necessarily want to get into absolutely I mean he makes tearish daggers with runes that counteract Kat's signet. Like, he knew that Viscount Takaris, Kat, all of this messiness was going to catch up to Violet. And I think he's trying to protect her from it as much as possible. He's a thinker, that one. Now, 
I know Zayden does apologize for all of this later, and I immediately forgive him rather rapidly, but I do still have to point out him being a bit of a overprotective Dane moment here. Let's get to this Wardstone. Quote, the shimmering black pillar rises to over twice the height of Zayden and would take all nine of us holding out our arms outstretched to surround it. All I could think of in this image here was actually at my wedding. We had a very, very small wedding. Like we had about 35 people present. And one of the things that the DJ had us do is all stand around the dance floor and link arms and just like have a moment of like little ring of trust or whatever. And I looked over at Lexi's husband, Jake. He starts going, <laughs> like from the, from how the Grinch stole Christmas, like everyone was down in Whoville around the Christmas tree because we're all holding hands. It was a Whoville moment. And I looked over at my husband and he goes hoovalation hoovalation <laughs> and I don't think I've ever seen Jake laugh harder it was perfect oh man they're a good duo they are however I do wonder if we're ever going to find out what the runes on the wardstone mean quote etched in the very center at least six feet across is a series of circles each fitting within the next and boasting a rune carved in along its path it's almost the same pattern as the pages of Warwick's journal I love that it's almost the same pattern this not of course but it's not entirely because Warwick's a fucking liar of course it goes on to say that it's it isn't quite identical but it's in the same positions like Warwick really was the chaos manifester of this first six and honestly not about it Warwick not about it but I do wonder if we're going to learn what the runes mean because boy oh boy is that curious so Violet is interpreting this as the six writers putting their blood in one of the seven designated positions on the wardstone six plus the one stone just again I love the reread on this and picking up on all those little hints that no Warwick did not give them clear correct instructions and even after, you know, obviously this attempt goes wrong for different reasons, but then once when they try it for the other reasons, it's like, oh, it kind of works, but it's just not quite there yet. And it's just great to see all that foreshadowing. It is notable, however, that Bodhi, our guy Bodhi, is one of the six most powerful writers in residence. God fucking damn it. I want to learn so much more about him and Garrick. Like, please give me a Zayden POV book so that we can spend more time with them. Now here, I want to point out one thing real quick. We're recording this the day after Rebecca announced on her Instagram that she has officially started writing book three. She was erasing a whiteboard with a previous book's emotional journey graph. It's literally just like a bunch, it almost looks like mountain peaks, like to figure out what the emotional journey of the book is. That was of a previous book. It's not of whatever Empyrean three is going to be called. However, there were a bunch of sticky notes down at the bottom. Were these for book three or not? We do not know. But several of the sticky notes overlapped almost like they were two POVs. So people have wondered if it is for Empyrean 3, if it's going to be a multiple POV book, more than just the one chapter we get at the very end. And if it is, we might get more Zayden POV in book three. Hope fuckingly. I was under the impression, and I don't remember the exact source here, so I might have to look back on this, but she has said in an interview that for the foreseeable future with the books, that the POV chapters will be similar to how the first few books have been, meaning it will be limited POVs from Zayden's perspective. Until he stops keeping secrets. And the big secret she couldn't write multiple POVs from him was obviously Second Signet intrinsic stuff. So I don't know if he's officially gushed out all of his secrets. We don't know. 
I want to know how it's determined who the most powerful writers are. They kind of have to guess, I guess. I don't know. I also love how Surrey points out the strength and power in family lines, referring to Violet and Brennan, plus Zayden and Bodie. I wonder if this is going to play into it a little bit more. Now, we do know that the writer's quadrant, they are allowed to marry right after they graduate because it is encouraged that they have legacies because writers, when they produce new writers, they usually have good powers and all of that kind of stuff. Maybe it's along those lines, but I wonder if this is a little bit of foreshadowing for something later on in family lines or whatnot. Do you think we're going to get a marriage between Zayden and Violet in this book series? Maybe. Maybe. I can't see it right now, but I can feel it. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that I actually want this in the books, but just like as someone who has children now, I want to see these two dynamic when they have kids and see how good they are and how horny they stay. <laughs> I want to see how their relationship changes once when they become parents. I'm not saying I actually want that trope in this series because I don't think we're going to get it. And I, I think that's a good thing, but I just need to see it. Yeah. What if it's like a 19 years later situation or whatever? <laughs> it's like many years later and then it's like them going off to their own writer's quadrant or their own Lilith Brennan Ryerson. <laughs> oh my holy fuck. <laughs> oh my God. Liam well, Dylan Ryerson. I could go to this Dylan. all day long. <laughs> Dylan was the emotional impact to get a second name. <laughs> Liam would be the name of their kid, though. That oh, would, absolutely. That yes. Would just absolute, <laughs> that would undo me. Well, okay. So speaking of Zayden, I know we were literally just giving Zayden shit for being an overprotective ass, but holy God damn it. If he is not flipping supportive in this moment, he has no pity, no disappointment in his gaze or anything after Violet quote unquote fails. I don't think she fails. This is called collecting data. But I love that this little detail, his hand, his Zayden's is the last to be taken off of the stone, even including Violet. Everyone in the assembly is like, I'm out, I'm done. And then Bodhi drops his and then Violet disappointed drops hers. And then Zayden finally drops his. Like it is so supportive boyfriend it's so encouraging his only reply in this moment is you'll try again it's speaking directly to that determined nature of hers she's he's not saying I'm so sorry it didn't work or you know anything like that he's saying you'll try again she is a determined motherfucker and I love it he also cuts away a piece of his uniform because he knows he just knows her it's so beautiful that she would want to keep the scar that this cut will create Brendan was about to mend it and she was like no I want to keep this scar as like a reminder and he wraps his own hand too in solidarity so they have matching scars and it's fucking perfect so cute because like i did not pick up on that i was so honed in on wardstone and runes and all of the magic (laughs) versus i was like love determined and wonderful supportive boyfriend i mentioned this a little bit earlier but we'll hone in on it here i again i love reading this attempt number one in a reread because there's so many telltale signs about why it isn't working obviously there's the mistranslation you're just so close violet it doesn't end up being blood but rather breath which means it's not the first six writers it's the first six dragons so crazy how that one little word completely changes the meaning of all of it. Another mistranslation is Iron Rain. It's actually going to be Iron Flame, like the name of the book. And then Warwick's journal states, of course, that it is six and the one, purposefully making the instructions right out in Darna's Den. I have so many questions about how this went down with Darna's Den and the correlation to most of the first six's belief that this war creation should never be replicated, so Navarre always has the upper hand. But we'll get to that in a later podcast episode. Last 
Lastly, the Warstone, it's not imbued. It is not humming with life to even begin with here. So if this group somehow had the right translation and they even had Andarna as a seventh dragon to breathe fire, this still wouldn't have worked because the Wardstone wasn't powered for activation. It's one of our favorite parts now. Felix the Professor is here. Ha! Huh, this scene, it really is one of my favorites in the book because it is so eye-opening for us and Violet. It's so funny because when you read this book for the first time, this is not one of the scenes or even I'd say all the subsequent Felix scenes are not the scenes I remember, you know, but going back and rereading, it's like, whoa, this is like some of the most important information we learn in this book is in these scenes with Felix. I'm so excited. We also learn how shitty of a teacher Carr was. My guy, Professor Carr, takes his final nail to the coffin and is lowered six feet under. Poor dude. But honestly, it's surprising, especially given how how Carr stand we were in in the first book. But it's also, it's really disappointing hearing how Carr was a shithead. Carr was all about increasing the amount of super powerful strikes within a quantity over quality situation. While Felix is all about mastering the basics. It's one of those like, oh, duh duh right (laughs) but like it's so satisfying to read and it's not something you'd expect because we didn't know any better violet didn't know any better felix's lessons to me are the promise of what's to come with violet's signet we are about to see literally her signet is playing chess while we were all playing checkers with this what we thought it was going to be like last book for instance i never would have thought violet's signet was quote heaving around boiling oil but it all makes so much sense now felix might be an ass But holy hell is he a helpful ass. He makes up for being an ass though when he says your lack of aim of control, it's not your fault, it's Carr's. He's such a good teacher. It does, however, make me wonder, was Carr not teaching her to master her signet on purpose? Was it his lack of understanding something this powerful? Felix says, for instance, it's because he was scared shitless of Violet. I'm wondering if it might be a conglomeration of all three. I don't know. I think that it's mostly Carr steering Violet in the wrong direction because he is scared shitless, as Felix says. Or rather, not just so much in the wrong direction, but in his preferred direction with honing her power to limit what she knew she was capable of. So it's definitely still like getting her more powerful, but not in the expansive and opportunistic way that she could, that would not do Navarre all the big favors that it really needs. It's very concentrated here. I think that both reasons for his bad teaching can coexist. There is probably some general lack of understanding exactly what she is capable of. Maybe he just knows that her signet is insanely powerful, but not precisely how, like Felix does. And he doesn't, I'll say, care to know more because he has what he needs. He has the weapon that he needs. And that is what they're going to focus on. I also don't think it's an accident that Carr has, quote unquote, like a typical signet. You know, his is fire wielding. And it's not, no no offense to our fire wielders, but it's not exactly what you would call an impressive, unique signet. I was reflecting on how these common signets manifest for individuals' core needs. Because in particular, I was thinking, what situation did Riddick at his core require ice? Like, and not just with him, but he's a really prime example of, um, I'll call them element wielding signets that are considered a lot more common. My theory is that these common signets manifest when writers don't have particularly strong needs. They're a little bit more, I'll call it surface level than our more powerful characters. Like Riddick, I love the guy, but he's not the deepest person ever. (laughs) And I do think that his signet reflects that because it is, it's not tapping into 
something really truly deep within him because it's just not quite there like the like I'm not saying that he's not a great character but it's not just not there and I think that that is the case for a lot of these other more common signet people as well I do wonder however why like what did Liam need that gave him farsight like why did he need desperately at his core to see further ahead I think that might play into his protective nature where it's almost like as a bodyguard he needs to be able to see everything that's going on around him and to be able to have that heightened sense there that's that was my thought that's so good. I do wonder if you can like burn out on a signet like Farsight or like ice wheel. Like ice wielding, I could kind of see more. But like, can you burn out by looking too far ahead too many times? Or is it like pushing yourself to look even further ahead? That's the burnout. Possibly. I guess you could ask the same thing about like Dane's signet. Yeah, like, I was just how would that. he burn out? You know, so how would the mind signets burn out? So many questions S- around signet. So I need many an questions. entire signet 101 book. Like I just need like a textbook on signets. There is literally a book called The Study of Signets. And I know that because I have been researching these epigraphs and the authors of these epigraphs because I am on the hunt to see if Papa Sorengale is one of the writers of these epigraphs. I need you to share your research on this ma'am. <laughs> I've just eliminated curators of the Scribe Quadrant because I don't think that her dad was a curator because no. that's Markham. And he was just based at Biscayeth and was really excited to get to use the archive. So I don't think that that would make him a curator. So I can eliminate like half of those guys. I I'll, 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 so I promise I'll, I don't even know if I have anything to go off of. So far, I don't have much at all because I have to start looking into the meaning of these names. Stay tuned. I'm working on it. Oh my god, I love you. To help Violet learn control and safely explore her signet capability, Felix gives Violet a conduit, which can be a bit difficult of an object to understand, so let's go over it here real quickly. Conduit is a glass orb that fits in your hand, and there is an alloy medallion inside the glass. So how does this conduit work? Taren channels his power through Violet, therefore making her a vessel for this power. When she releases her power, instead of it striking as a lightning bolt where she has no control over it, she sends this power Power into the conduit. The conduit holds this power, causing it to glow and stay trapped within the glass box. Oh, I just, I can absolutely envision that. I bet it's so cool. And the conduit has runes etched into it that Felix wove specifically for Violet to draw a certain power, which means she is indeed imbuing the alloy that Felix placed in there. She'll later switch these alloy medallions out as she continues imbuing them, doing her part to help create these alloy-hilted weapons against the venom. I just absolutely love that. So as he says, it's kind of like siphoning her powers into this conduit, but it's a little bit different than, you know, of course, a siphoning wielding power, of course. I keep saying this, but I really can't gush enough about how much I love learning about Violet's signet. There was so much speculation that she was capable of more than just lightning from after reading Fourth Wing and seeing it play out here on the page. It's just so beautiful. It makes me that much more excited for the future of these books and all of the magic and power that is really going to shine through the pages. Felix explains that Zayden's signet can control and increase what already exists. However, Violet, on the other hand, can create something that was not there before. It's just quite the comparison of their signets and goes to show how much more innately powerful Violet's signet is than even Zayden's shadows. And here's my favorite part. Violet produces pure power in the form of lightning bolts because that's what she's most comfortable wielding. Until this moment, that was the only way she, and us as readers, knew was possible with her power. But it's just more of what she's most comfortable with. So what else can she wield with this pure power, especially from 
her hands. Ah, oh, just the doors that this just opened is just absolutely incredible. And I can't wait to explore it. I feel like I don't even know what is capable. Like there is like, I don't have the imagination to figure out what this also could take form in. Cause like, is it going to stick with lightning for the rest of the book? Or are we going to see it in some totally new form in like an amp? I just, oh my God, there's so many ideas. So many. Ideas. I wonder if it's not so much of like a lightning wielding, but it is more of an energy wielding. And we know that there has not been a lightning wielder in a century, but what if she is more than that lightning wielding? And she actually is more of like an energy wielder, which isn't so much of a siphon because siphons, I think might be a little bit more closer to Zayden's power where they have to draw from what already exists. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. So while she can create power, she can create energy from nothing. I, right? I, it's so much fun. I can't wait. This sequence is also the first time we truly see Violet not just want to hone her signet, but explore its realm of possibilities. Because of Carr's limited teachings, she has had a very narrow perspective about what she's capable of, obviously. And I'll argue that she's been afraid of her signet and the lightning power. We definitely knew that in Fourth Wing, and I do think that has continued here. She hasn't had this curiosity to explore what else she can do with it. She's really taken her power at face value and just like, cool, like I can just do some bolts of lightning I can't aim but there's that that's fine that's all it's been really yes of course she she's self-conscious that she can't aim but she just keeps doing the exact same thing over and over and over and we know that if you keep trying to solve a problem using the exact same method over and over and over after a certain point it's not so much you just need more practice it is you need a new method to get the results that you're looking for here and I think that this is a great illustration of that realm of opportunity opening up here for her. Yes, she has been training to get faster at her lightning wielding, and she's, of course, hoping for better aim, but she's only doing what she's told. She doesn't care to explore more than what she's being told to do. Now, however, Violet has to seize the opportunity and prove herself that she wants to learn more beyond just lightning. She's wanting to start thinking out of the box, and that's a really exciting prospect for all of us on Violet's Hero's Journey. I cannot wait. There's this line with Felix where he says, you wielded him, meaning Zayden. If Violet does wield pure power and Zayden is the most powerful rider of their generation, can she also wield people in that way? Now, there's also a second signet theory where she's wielding influencing over people I'll say like she almost wields power of persuasion or power persuasion it would be another mind signet I'm not sold on this I don't know if I like this idea just because it doesn't feel very violent to manipulate I'm going to say people also because Felix says quote power isn't only found in our signets I feel like that kind of separates the two things pretty drastically I think it's a very cool signet idea but I don't think it's our girl's second signet or a branch of her power signet here this is totally random but I was just thinking about that power of persuasion or manipulation that would be an interesting mind signet for Colonel Atos Just throwing that out there. Now, of course, like Lilith and other leadership would be able to shield him since he cannot persuade them to get out of the coastal outpost. But but you know who wouldn't be able to shield him? Dane, because he doesn't use his shielding power the way that he should. (laughs) Well, and also think about it. In most of his upbringing, he couldn't shield. He couldn't shield until he had a dragon connection. So he only in the last year would have learned how to shield from his father. But also he was probably so comfortable around it. Oh my holy fuck. I, what if I, this is possible? Oh my God. 
<laughs> what anyway, if that's I know, Colonel Atos? You, you mentioned that, and that's immediately who I thought of. The line about, you know, you wielded him and this conversation that Felix is having about the power that Violet has over Zayden. I really do believe that this reflects how... I'll say dangerous their relationship is and specifically Zayden's honest feelings about Violet and how dangerous it is to the greater cause here that they're all working for with the revolution. Zayden gets major tunnel vision when it comes to Violet. He has admitted this. We know this. Everybody knows this. And especially the assembly, they also know it and they're scared about it, which I totally understand. I would be too if Zayden was saying these things to Violet and it's like, yes, that's very sweet, honey, but there really is other important things out there. I mean, we see this in the ending of this book. Like, he is so in love with her that he literally turns venom for her. If I was the assembly, I would also be scared. And I would also be like, oh, honey, you are 23. You have so much life to live. I say this as a (laughs) 29-year-old. So Violet has the Zayden Ryerson that everybody is terrified of just wrapped around her finger and she's very powerful. And yeah, no shit. That is absolutely a recipe for disaster. Okay, well, I have a question about Felix and that is, was he a student six years ago or was he a teacher at Bezgayeth six years ago? It's stated earlier in the book that he has gray hair. I think it's like mentioned gray hair in his beard. A thick silver beard. Thick silver beard. But to be honest, maybe he just grayed early. That's definitely a possibility. I'm assuming that he was more along the teacher lines. But what did he teach since he says, quote, it seems Carr hasn't changed much in the six years since I've been gone. So if Carr was already a teacher and it doesn't seem like Felix was a signet professor before Carr. Was he an RSC professor? You know, I was wondering about this timeline as well. It gave me pause because Felix, as we've said, is described as a large man with a thick silver beard. And that definitely does not sound like someone who is about 30 years old. And six years ago was also the Tyrish Rebellion. And we know that Felix is a powerful writer. He was one of the six most powerful writers that are in Orisha. It doesn't make sense that he would be stationed at Biscayeth instead of fighting. My guess here is that he was not a student or a professor. He was a high-ranking officer and traveled to Biscayeth somewhat frequently. I love the thought that he was the RSC professor. He could have easily just been, you know, rotation six years ago, since we do know that's how it works from Grady. I do, however, think that he was just an officer. And I believe that we actually do find out that he is a colonel, a Colonel Felix. And so I think that he was an officer who just very frequently went to this guy because that's what they do okay I could see that he does say since I left six years ago but he could mean left Navarian military so that would make sense so Bezgayeth was built on runes. Is this the wards, which would make a lot of sense? Or is this something else? Is this something anti-venin related? Is it something dragon related? I don't think it means anything other than face value, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, well, everything you just said there, it equals the Wardstones. Is it dragon related? Yes. Is it anti-venin related? Yes. I did also perk up at this line too, and I'm just kind of shelving that information to see if it comes in handy at a later time. But I do think that it is referring to the Wardstone because we know that there are those seven symbols, those seven runes around it that ultimately make up the power with the seven dragon fire. I think you're dead on the money, but I am also storing that on a high shelf that... Maybe I can't get for later, but I can ask someone else to get for me. You know, it's one of those high shelves. Like it's the shelf that I don't need very often. That's exactly right. Yes. (laughs) You and I are both very short, so we know that life very well. (laughs) 
So the three Sorengales mission. I fucking loved this. I love this so much. Violet cares more for those around her than she does for her own well-being. And it's apparent here in her mission to Corden. She even thinks to herself that if she has to stay in poor meal so her friends and family can be safe, then so be it. She has accepted her possible fate here as a sacrifice for her in order to protect the people that she loves. She's always looking out for everyone else. She's trying to protect them from harm. I really feel like there's some second signet stuff in there muddled in all of that. I'm not saying like just again like her core needs and one of her core needs is protecting the people that she loves. God. But for right now, Mira saying, yes, mom, like as a joke, is one of my favorite moments in the book because all of them fall silent. And it is just so awkward. <laughs> like, it's so awkward. And then she follows up with, too soon. And it's like, and they're like, yeah, this exchange is something that would totally happen with my in-laws and their family. Yes. They are known for their dark humor. And this, like, Mira would really fit in well with them. <laughs> I love your in-laws. So, like your in-laws came to my 35-person wedding. That's how much I yes. love them. <laughs> They're amazing. This book should just be called Taren Keeps Getting Insulted. Like the amount of times that he has to say, that question insults me, or I'm going to pretend like you didn't ask that. Like Taren is so hashtag over it. He's taking care of an adolescent. He is now taking care of a, like, um... 20 year old who's in love and he is just so over having to remind people that he is one confident and capable powerful dragon i love his confidence i love his arrogance i love that he is just so over it he is just this poor dad who's doing really really well in his career and he's like this like kind of big head honcho guy and then he's got these two moody daughters (laughs) who just like walk all over him It makes me wonder what, because like, I I don't really remember a whole lot of like childhood and stuff like that, but, or like at least like mom and dad's things, but it makes me wonder what dad was like when we were two teenagers because he had two daughters. I remember quite well and it was a rough few years (laughs) for all, all parties. Let's just keep it at that. I am the very first one to say that I did not make it easy. Thank God we all like each other now. (laughs) Okay. I want to live in Corden. Like there's, yes, there's me a few, too. Yeah. Like there's a few places in books where it's like, oh my God, I want to live there. There's one place in the Akatar universe that I will not say right now, but I want to live there in a fucking heartbeat. But Corden is pretty dope as well. This place has a palace that literally looks like it is glowing. Like I think about this like gorgeous, like effervescent house, you know? Taryn literally calls this place a poor excuse for a fortress, which, and to be fair, he is not wrong. It would not be helpful in the slightest in battle, but God damn it, it sounds beautiful. It's right next to a blue-green sea. It's right on the beach. This place sounds like my heaven. I absolutely agree. I love how these descriptions show just how contrasting Navarre is as well. Despite its wards, Navarre is a military-focused society dedicated to self-preservation. They believe in practicality over beauty, and the stark contrast really shows here with these reactions to Corden, especially because, make no mistake, Corden is in danger of the venom. They are like in their line of sight, probably. They're very close to wherever the venom are. And hence why Takaris wants Violet, which of course we'll discuss a lot more in next week's episode. Also, I have to ask all of the fans out there, 
where is the fan art for Corden? I've been keeping an eye out for it and I haven't seen any yet. I do like my frequent check-ins on Pinterest and I've been looking on Instagram and all of that. I have not come across any yet. So if you find any or if you have created some, please send it to us, tag us. We want to see this location. I've seen a lot of Violet's Deverly Silk dress. Me too. <gasps> so beautiful. I want to. I don't know. I think it could have used some color, but that's just me. Oh my <laughs> God. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's not a catty, Lexi. Oh, man. I... I'm going to need a few drinks before we talk about next week's episode with Kat. Maybe next week is finally the week we do an episode drunk <laughs> with the mimosas. I think I might need it. <laughs> I love these lines on a reread. Brennan notes that it looks almost like they were expected on their arrival in Corden because there's three dozen people watching them from the balconies in addition to three griffins and their flyers blocking the entrance. Of course this makes sense because Zayden caught wind that they were arriving from Segal and Taryn's connection and he went ahead and you know told his good old friend Viscount Takaris that they were expecting and I just I love those lines on a reread. It is time to talk about some griffins and their powers because we get so much griffin download right now. They call their powers gifts not signets because from what it sounds like they have multiple but they have one main one am I correct here you are yes so it's essentially like signets but they just don't call it that I love that they call it gifts because in Navarre people really are labeled for whatever their signet is it is their identity Carr made that very clear where he was literally calling Violet a signet However, in poor meal, they call them gifts. And it's not so much of a label as this is what you are. This is what defines you. But it is part of it. Their lesser magic is also a lot more heightened and more strong than dragon lesser magic. I think partly because they just need to use it more frequently. And I think that because... There is, I'll say, a little bit more of a gray area between their signet power or their gifted power, as they call it. There's not as much of a distinction between like, okay, this is the less power that you have and then this is like your shining one power. I think that the waters are a little bit more muddied and I love that because the power that they have is more fluid. It does not define them in the same way that it does with dragons. And yes, it is their gift, but they also appreciate the other magic that they also possess. It is also very interesting that the focus is on mind signets because mind gifts I guess like especially given how I'm gonna say not anti-mind signet but hyper controlled mind signets are in Navarre how they are just so frequent among flyers it does make me wonder how do they trust anyone as a griffin flyer I would not trust a fucking soul if I because they all can just fuck with each other. Well, well, especially once when you bring in, because I think that the shields, the dragon riders' shields don't work against their mind signet powers. Isn't that right? Because Violet has her shields up and yet Kat is still able to go in and mess with her emotions and it isn't until Zayden gives her the rune ah. that then stops Kat's. So do they all just like walk around with these runes then? But then would that cancel out their own segment. I don't know if I'll say that mind signets are a lot more prominent because you have to remember there are a lot of mind signets in Navarre as well but I think that it's just how they're being used like we haven't seen the griffins in an outright battle against the venom really a whole lot yet where other powers other gifts that they might possess they're able to really utilize so I think that 
we just are have been in situations where people with those mind powers are a lot more prevalent and we've met characters who just have those i that might just be a coincidence of of how we're being introduced to these characters in the stories and well and also like apparently cat and serena are powerful enough to have survived resin so we know that they're at least really good flyers but i want to know what serena's power is what her gift is or here's another thing do all griffin flyers have those heightened gifts or maybe Serena, she is still powerful, but she doesn't have like that one, I'll say, gift that really stands out for her. And maybe that's more why they don't label themselves as that, because some of them have these heightened powers and some of them don't. But it doesn't matter because they all find themselves on that even playing field. Oh, I like that line of thinking. I'm massively shipping Mira and a Griffin Flyer. Doesn't matter which Griffin Flyer. Vina, her cousin, I don't care. It. I want someone... Of a Griffin Flyer, of poor Emil descendants, I want them with Mira. She just really seems to speak their language with her hostility. She just, I, I, we'll talk about this more next episode when Mira and Serena are talking and she's like, oh, like your cousin, you know, he's not really your type. Like he wouldn't really go for Griffin or he wouldn't really go for a dragon rider. I just, I hope that happens. I could totally see it. I would hope so as well. Yes, absolutely. Honestly, I'm shipping Mira and Serena. I would die for that duo. I, I, oh. I am absolutely as well. To close out this section, it is time to talk about Zayden taking a massive massive L. This is actually the start of his L's that he's going to take in just a few short pages in this book. But man, oh man, does he really pack them in. So earlier in this chapter, Violet laments that she almost misses when Zayden wanted to kill her because he wasn't so overprotective. Just think about that for a second. You miss when your boyfriend wanted to kill you so that he wasn't so overprotective and then in Corden when he walks over to her and he's like you're not where I left you violence he looks like he is about to commit shadow daddy murder so you know be careful what you wish for she actually literally literally even says guess I should be careful what I asked for but this line you aren't where I left you violence I mean first of all it's a great great chapter sentence ender But it is not a good look for Zayden. In only a matter of pages, she is going to say that he reminds her of Dane. Ooh, that is quite the insult. That's a big old insult right there. That is like a, you're acting like your mother kind of insult. But honestly, he deserves it. He deserves to be compared to Dane in that moment because he's acting like an overprotective ass and not letting her make her own goddamn decisions like a goddamn adult that she is. Luckily, unlike Dane last year, Zayden, however, does listen to her and immediately shifts his behavior once he sees her in the Dimmerly silk dress and he, you know, gets his face slammed in a door from the you are acting like Dane comment. But we are not there quite yet. So Zayden, I love you, but this is not your best stretch of chapters. Yeah, you better watch out, Zayden. We are going to be talking a lot about your losses, taking those L's in the next episode. Yes, we will. Before we move into our next section of the podcast, we have to do our gravity count, which in this stretch, we only have one mention of gravity. It is when Zayden pulls his shirt down and exposes his scar on his chest. This is where gravity shifts for Violet. Note, this is the first time in results to Zayden that he has not been deemed the center of her gravity something that pulls her down to earth. This is the first time, and note, it's right after a Venom dream, which is interesting. This is the first time in results to being with Zayden that her gravity 
tilts or shifts. So I just thought that was interesting. But Gravity and Zayden and Violet counts, I believe, are up to four for the whole book. Now let's move forward to foreshadowing where we take additional lines and parts of the book and share how they are or might be foreshadowing for later parts of the book or series. So to kick us off here, The Venom and Violet's Dream says, and the longest night has yet to pass. Yes, indeed. The big battle happens on the winter solstice, aka the longest night. A long night indeed. When Violet is going down on Zayden, hmm, I had to pull a foreshadowing out from this moment. <laughs> she says, quote, how is every inch of this man perfect? There has to be a flaw somewhere. Well, he is hiding a big old secret from you, which when you do find out, I could consider it a flaw. And that is that he is an intrinsic. You just don't know it yet. When going to the assembly chamber, Zayden and Violet pass by Arik, who says, what now, Sorengale? And Zayden says in their mind-to-mind speak, he isn't asking about the schedule. Nope, and he probably knows this because he can read minds. I bet you that Zayden is absolutely reading Arik's mind because he does not like him. He does not trust him. Yet. I hope for the, I hope a major friendship stems between those two. I'm really, really naively hoping for that. When Violet is going up to see Andarna for the first time after she wakes up, there's a mention of the mouths of the cave caves to the west. We are going to be in those caves in just a matter of chapters. Also, Violet describes Andarna as kind of dot 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 green. We will see many colors for our girl Andarna and learn that she's almost a chameleon-like character. Terrence says, you cannot mend what does not exist. We will see this with Sawyer and the leg that unfortunately no longer exists for him too when it is hoped that they are able to mend it. But I also wonder if this is a promise for a more powerful segment we'll see later. We wondered a little while ago if maybe there is a way to mend what did not exist or a way to mend magic or some kind of, I'll say, elevated version of this mending signet. Ooh, I like that. Violet about the journal, quote, I've translated the section we need three times and I think I'm close. Dane will literally be shocked that she just translated the section we need or the passage about the Wardstone activation and not the whole book and honestly I'm with Dane on this one (laughs) yeah me too like I I can definitely see her like zoning in on that section at first and then it's like okay then we need the greater context now of course it takes her a while to translate and she doesn't have a lot of time so I can understand her priority of just look focusing on the section but (laughs) Violet ultimately should know better when placing their hands on the wardstone quote it's colder than I expect yep violet because it hasn't been imbued we talked about this too where it needs to be imbued for any of what they're doing to activate this wardstone to actually work And last but not least, this is possible foreshadowing. Taryn and Violet are talking about the indefensible nature of the palace of Corden. And Violet thinks, quote, it will fall should Venon choose to take it. I do wonder if the city of Corden, specifically Viscount Takaris, is going to fall to the Venon at some point, maybe in book three. Maybe he'll travel to the Isles. Maybe he'll be like, yeet out of uh, Poor I can totally see him doing that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He would. He's a coward. (laughs) Now let us step into the archives where each episode our favorite older sister Lexi educates us on a prominent world building topic from this stretch of chapters. So today's archives topic is everything we know about the revolution and more specifically the assembly. So let's kick it off with the revolution and its mission. The revolution, note that I'm not calling it a rebellion, it stands in opposition to the kingdom of Navarre. It is continuing Finn Ryerson's Tyrandor rebellion. These efforts have been in secret 
over the past six years. And this revolution is both allying with poor male as they actively fight the venom invading their lands by supplying them with venom killing weapons and preparing for when the venom inevitably arrive at Navarre's borders. The revolution's primary focus has been securing more weaponry and searching for the weapon that killed off the venom 600 years ago, which we know nothing else about. It drives me so crazy how I keep mentioning this in archives and don't have anything else to say about it. The best way to secure more weaponry is to get a forge up and running in Arisha. However, that requires a luminary for such a forge, and the only other one in existence that we know of is in Viscount de Cars's possession in Corden, hence why they're there. Arisha has had the opportunity twice now to secure the luminary in Corden, or at least have had access to it, but Zayden refused both deals. The first deal was marrying Kat, which he broke off the betrothal over a year ago, right before he started his third year at Biscayeth, and the second time was more recently when he refused to bring Violet to Dakaris for him to see her wield lightning. So, without the luminary and therefore no forge of their own, the revolution is very reliant on their connections to Biscayeth to smuggle weapons out. They're in a catch-22. They need more recruits for the revolution and to supply more drifts to even have a chance against the Venyan in the next year, but they don't have enough weapons to supply these hypothetical recruits and all the drifts that they are needing to supply right now. They also can't smuggle more than they already are from Biscayeth. They're really kind of at their limit here with what they're already getting out of Biscayeth or were getting out of Biscayeth before Zayden and Violet took all their connections and skipped on out of there. The Assembly has discussed taking Biscayeth's forging device for themselves and their poor male allies if they're this close to losing the war. Brennan, however, is particularly against this because then Navarre can't replenish their alloy supplies at the outposts and that will lead to the wards falling for everybody. Remember, the powered alloy keeps the extended wards going. If they can't replenish this alloy, the wards lose that necessary power and then falter. Ultimately, the revolution is on a time crunch with Venon quickly gaining traction in Pormil. It's a very real possibility that the tides will turn too far in the Venon's favor to ever even have a chance at beating them. Zayden actually secretly believes they are 50 years too late already. While the revolution is dedicated to protecting and fighting for the continent, the assembly has some conflicting standards when it comes to protecting Navarre's citizens. Ultimately, their actions and goals are supposed to align with defending Navarre's citizens against Venon, but they refuse to come to Navarre's aid when called upon because they consider its leadership to be their enemy in addition to the Venon. It would seem hating Navarre's leadership is more important to the assembly than actually saving citizens. Not a good look. Luckily, we have voices of reason like Violet to push against this later in part two, and the revolution does save face, indeed coming to Navarre's aid at Biscayeth. So we're talking about this assembly. What is it? The assembly is a seemingly democratic leadership of the new revolution. Its seven members are made up of four men and three women, and they're all bonded dragon riders who we can assume turned from Navarre before or during the previous rebellion. Their headquarters are at Ryerson House in Arisha, and the assembly allows for a quorum of five members to convene a vote because it's uncommon for all seven members to be present together. A majority of four votes passes a motion. Two of the assembly members lead the revolution's armies and ultimately the assembly is a committee that strategizes and leads the revolution together. Now, let's learn about each of the seven assembly members. Number one, we have Major Ulysses 
Ferris, a.k.a. Hawknose, to Violet. He's an older man with an eye patch and a hawkish nose, hence Violet's nickname for him. He has thinning gray hair and deep lines in his lightly tanned, weathered skin. His jowls hang like a wildebeest. Kind of sounds like my dog. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he's said to be quick to make decisions, and he's rather hot-tempered. <laughs> Go figure. His dragon is a green sword tail named Than. He ends up teaching physics to the cadets who go to the side of the revolution. I already went on my whole tangent about why physics should not be a productive class here. But anyway, General Melgren enlightens us that he was believed to be dead from the rebellion six years ago. This makes me wonder the circumstances of the other assembly members and why they hid during the Navarian leadership meetup. Remember, two of them did go into the woods and hide with their dragons. So I wonder if they were still playing dead, so to speak. That's my guess. Now on to the second assembly member, Suri. She is described as a wide-shouldered brunette with olive skin and a single streak of silver in her hair. She is the most outspoken of the assembly in her dislike for Violet. I'm just going to call it hate for Violet because that's what it is. And wow, that's really saying something because most of the assembly members do not like Violet whatsoever. While I don't believe we know her signet, she is considered one of the six most powerful writers in Orisha. And Suri's dragon is a brown club Surrey and Ulysses are the two who command the Revolution's army that I mentioned a little while ago there. Now moving on to number three, Felix, aka Silverbeard. He's a large man with a thick silver beard, ebony skin, and a calming voice. While I don't believe we know his signet, he is also considered one of the six most powerful writers in Arisha, like Surrey. He's one of the few who was not outright anti-Violet when she arrived in Arisha for the first time, and so you could say that he's a Violet sympathizer. He is considered the most reasonable and level-headed of the assembly members and Felix becomes Violet's new lightning wielding teacher and he quickly proves to be a million times better and more helpful than Professor Carr. The fourth assembly member that we have here is Kylan who is nicknamed Battle Axe in Violet's point of view. She is an older woman built like a battle axe of course with a square chin, short blonde hair, and alabaster skin. She is another one who is definitely not a fan of Violet. She takes over flight maneuver training once the cadets are arrive in Arisha. The fifth assembly member is Trissa. She's a petite woman with glossy black hair and umber skin, and she's the most soft-spoken out of the assembly, but she also has the sharpest tongue when she's pissed off. She is considered the most patient out of all of them, and because of this, she ends up teaching the new class for cadets in Arisha, Tears runes. The sixth member of the assembly is Brennan Sorengale, aka Lieutenant Colonel Acerai. However, the assembly members do know his real identity. Acerai, remember, translates to resurrect in Tearish. He is the tactician of the assembly and has a preceding reputation for being a brilliant strategist. When they set up the Traders College, Brennan takes the place of the scribe quadrant curator, aka Markham's position, since they don't have anyone else for the role in Orisha. And last but not least, we have the seventh assembly member. Zayden Ryerson, the heir apparent to Ryerson House of Arisha. He may be the youngest and assumably lowest rank, but he is the most powerful writer, head of Arisha, and technically Tyrandor, and he is symbolically the leader of the revolution. That is a wrap on today's archives and the current revolution and the assembly and its members. Bless you. Sweet, wonderful soul for the research you do on these sections. Thank you. <laughs> Last but not least, it is time to take flight with our favorite moments from the stretch of chapters. Quote, now this is a view I could be more than happy to wake up to for the rest of my life. I love these peaceful moments in their relationship where they just get to be happy. Damn it. 
Violet admits to Zayden that she thinks she fucked up. He corrects her, saying that they fucked up. But then he does follow with, doesn't mean we weren't right. I feel like we can all relate to this, right? Feeling like we fucked up, but at our core, we know what we did was right. Maybe just not the method of how we went about achieving our goal was the best possible avenue of doing so. In the assembly chamber, when Hawk knows Ulysses, looks pointedly at Zayden and Violet's joint hands. Violet gets all self-conscious for like the first time in this entire book. From <laughs> I know, right? And she pulls her hand away and quote, Zayden sighs like I'm the biggest problem he has and snatches it back. I just, I can see that so vividly. Like all hell is erupting for them. And he just goes, ah. And like grabs it back. I love it. Battle X says, quote, gods, you brought us Atos and scribes. It's not like we can send them out to battle Wyvern and Venon. First and foremost, they also sent them 97 other writers from the writer's quadrant. Like, what are they, chopped liver? And also, what a dig at Dane. (laughs) I love seeing Indarna and Sigale's relationship and how they kind of gang up on Taryn. Taryn says, quote, I told you to be patient to Andarna. And she levels this look on him. And Sigale huffs in appreciation towards Andarna. Like, I love that so much. I really love when fantasy worlds bring in everyday logistics. And Rebecca does that here in Arisha with Brennan's concern over the sheep population. Because this really would be a real problem that they have to solve for. This reminds me of George R.R. Martin, who has stated, a Song of Ice and Fire partially stems from his love for Lord of the Rings, but he made sure to include political intricacies as a differentiation for his world. Tolkien glossed over the logistics of ruling kingdoms and all of that, but Martin wanted to know about the how kingdoms ran. And I like seeing a little bit of that here with Brennan's concern about how to feed all of these dragons. It's just a little glimpse into real life problems that they would experience, but fantasy worlds, they don't necessarily have to talk about this kind of stuff because they're always focused on like the bigger picture, right? So I just love that addition there. Devera coming in as teacher of the year again. She's telling all these traitor cadets how proud she is of them for doing the honorable thing. And a quick little addition as we're talking about teachers. I love the detail that Kaori stayed up as Gaius because his place was with the Empyrean. Not with Biscayeth, not with Navarre, the Empyrean. The dragons he has dedicated his life to studying. I would love a Kaori point of view story. Like it would just be this guy happy as a clam running around with dragons. Like that is the true dragon tales that I want. Like I love that so much. Violet asks if Iron Rain means anything to Taryn, which he says, should it? And Darna says, quote, clearly or she wouldn't be asking. And then Violet goes on to say, I can practically feel Andarna's eye roll. But then Andarna goes on to say, ooh, Ooh, sheep like she just gets distracted and I love that and Taryn this is my favorite little passage Taryn says quote they will not stay down if you keep stuffing them in like that <laughs> like, it's just such a disappointed over it dad and it's perfect speaking of these two Taryn saying that question insults me and in Darna says quote can you carry a luminary while insulted like <laughs> This is really not making me excited for my daughter to become a teenager. (laughs) Your daughter's practically a teenager right now. I I have a Christmas story real quick to share, actually, from this year. We were all just chilling, like, right after unwrapping presents. And, you know, the kids have had, like, a big day at this point. Like, they've been, you know, like, absolute gems. And all of a sudden, little girl starts, you know, having her, like, start of a I'm tired tamper tantrum and then she lays down on the ground almost like a child's pose situation and then full-blown 
pancakes out and just starts absolutely losing it. But then she looks up at Lexi to make sure she's watching and then continues absolutely losing it on the ground. And Brett and I were on the couch just covering our mouths because we were laughing so hard. It was so funny. And like that happens all the time. She There's no reason for her temper tantrums except to get attention. And I just, she's my little drama queen and I love her. She's <laughs> amazing. I love her so much. Now, Taryn, quote, dropping out of the sky like a damned meteor. Like, I see that so vividly. I love that little moment. And quote, this is describing Felix. He watches me with an expression I am too jaded to call compassion. That is just such a good literary line. Like, it's not he watches me with compassion. It's I'm too jaded to call this compassion. Like, you can just see that so vividly. Well done, Rebecca. Well done. The whole scene where Felix helps Violet unlock what she's capable of with her lightning signet. I know we've talked about this at length, but a few little nuggets here. Of course, it does not come without its jabs. Would it help if I painted them? Speaking about the boulders, I just, I love that little retort there. It's like, that's just like kicking off the lesson where it's like, oh boy, we got to buckle in here for Felix's lesson. And then how he ends their lesson by saying he'll only teach cadets who want to learn and that Violet has to show him that she truly wants to. Again, that's calling back to Violet has to prove that she is really and truly curious to tap into her expanded power here rather than just doing what she's told to do. I love this line from Felix, quote, what you want to be doesn't change what you are without work. This is just good like life coach Felix coming into play here. This is just good life advice and I love it so much. I do as well. Very very on point for you. <laughs> I honestly like I would I would make that another one of my little painted canvases quotes up here. Absolutely. Mira being such a big older sister and doing her best to make up to Violet that she didn't believe her about the venom and Wyvern earlier. She admits that she likes protective Zayden because he keeps Violet more safe and it's just all that big sister energy that I absolutely love. I love when Violet asks Taryn to, quote, stop intimidating the Griffins. And Taryn replies with, I can't help their inferiority. We're going to talk a lot more about the Griffin and Dragon and the Flyers and Riders dynamic in the coming episode. Oh, I cannot wait. And then last but not least, we got some cute sibling shit. And that is Brennan putting Violet in between him and Mira and, quote, some things never change. That's accurate. All right. And that is it for today's episode, friends. Thank you so much for joining us for episode seven here of our Iron Flame coverage. Next episode, we will be diving into chapters 41 through 44. It is going to be a big episode. I feel like we just say that about every episode, but there's a lot that happens in this next episode. So people know that is Viscount Takaris' house and that is the hike up the cliffs of Draylor. I am not looking forward to doing the outline for that chapter. We're going to have to limit how much we talk about Kat because we're going to have so much to say about Honestly, her. yeah. At that point, it'll just be repetitive parrots talking as always thank you to our executive producer Hayden for being just the best human and for being our sanity manager we love you and like we said at the top of the episode if you are interested in more content if you want more community to connect with please join our patreon party we have those two tiers and you can go to the link in our show notes or youtube captions speaking of more content we are starting a monthly newsletter here in the new year by the way happy new year everybody we oh, got yeah. so into our episode that we never said that and you know we usually try to keep the holiday stuff out just for evergreen content but happy new year welcome to 2024 we are starting a monthly newsletter this year this month so if you want our podcast and event schedule if you want recommendations for other fantasy books if you want to support small businesses 
please go ahead, sign up for our monthly newsletter. You won't regret it. Friendly reminder also that if you want to rep that OG Fantasy Fangirls logo, if you want to show that you are the OG Fantasy Fan, you know when you find a musician like right when they start and then they get really big and you're like, mm, I was with them when they first started. If you want yes. to have that energy, but you want to rep it on a t-shirt, Go to the link in our show notes to check out our merch store. You have until January 19th, 2024 to get that OG merch. And then it is all going bye-bye and the new logo is in to stay. And if you are not following us on Instagram and TikTok, what are you doing? Go ahead, give us a follow at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. Also, do not forget to rate and review the show, whatever podcast platform you are listening on. It is so helpful for helping us get up the charts, for helping new people find the show. Thank you to anyone who has done it already. We love you. And last but not least, if you want to share this with your fellow Iron Flame friends, please do do so. This is the best way to get the word out about the show. You know that friend who loves reading Smut with you and you love talking about how much you love blowjob scenes? This is the podcast episode for you to share with them. Thank you again so much for joining us and welcome 2024. We are so excited to embark on this year's journey of book deep dives. We love you all. Bye. Bye. And reminds the assembly what he... Whoa, I had my smoothie too late. I'm so sorry. It's going to be a spitty episode. Wow, words are hard today. Like you said, cult, archer, entertainment. Col- culture. Cult, not cult. <laughs> follow the duckling. That's not. Follow the goose. Follow the leader. Follow the leader. That means that the other eight must have been out on parole. Patrol? Parole? Patrol. Definitely patrol. patrol. Like, you know, like... It, like, what am I saying? I just, like, I totally forgot that that's so Raven. She had the ability to see the future. Is that right? That was the oh, whole wow. premise of the show. It's been a long time since I watched the Disney Channel. Oh, I'm the sister. I'm older. Meh. <laughs> to which Taryn calls a carrot excuse? I was wondering what the heck you meant. <laughs> a carrot excuse for a fortress. This is what happens when you have dyslexia and you don't copy paste quotes from the book. I don't know what this is. This is after I went through and cleaned up your stuff too. It was like as I read through it. It is so funny the way the light. I is know. In the <laughs>